This week, Rose and the End of the World. Now, personally, I know that considering the destruction of everything I know always makes me hungry for fried potatoes. listening to Oi Spaceman, a Doctor Who love story. We're a polyamorous married couple who discuss Doctor Who from a generally progressive, feminist, and social justice oriented perspective. While we try to be sensitive, we generally don't consider this to be a safe space. Spoilers, naughty language, a general disregard for most things Stephen Moffat, and other adult content are likely found within. Yeah, though, really, wouldn't you want French fries? Or chips? Free, freedom fries, please. R- wrong administration, Papa's, Jack. Papa's fritas? <laughs> and we're back! Welcome Woo! to episode 94, a very Yay. belated episode 94 of Voice Spaceman, a Doctor Who love story. I'm Daniel, you've heard Shayna, my wife, say hi, Shayna. Hi, Shayna. And uh, egging us on because he just wants to listen to more of us talk for some reason. We are once again joined by our prophet Elijah, Jack Graham. Say hi, Jack. Hi, Jack. So uh, we we took an extended break, and that is largely because I couldn't be bothered to uh, do any of the production work on this podcast uh, due to, um, let's just say, current events related to depression. Um, but, uh, we're dipping our toes back in and we're doing stuff that I think we all really enjoy and, um, has some problems, but, but ultimately mm-hmm. it's something that we're going to, uh, really just kind of come in and snuggle like a warm blanket. Um, and that is, uh, Christopher Eccleston's first two episodes as the doctor, the episodes that brought back, uh, Dr. Who to, uh, the screens, uh, the first two episodes I ever saw. And that is again, Rose and the end of the world. Yay. <laughs> and yeah (laughs) so um i don't know i don't really have like a a nice a structure here i want to cover i guess we'll kind of i mean it'll be easy to kind of cover rose and cover the end of the world to kind of after that but i really i always think of these as it's kind of a two-parter i mean the whole of series one of the revived show is a you know, it is kind of one long story, much more so than we kind of get from the uh, from the modern show most of the time, um, where it is very thematically connected. And I, I definitely one of these days we're going to do uh, uh, the part the the two part of that ends it because those two are two of my favorite episodes as well. But um, I really think that these two really work well together. My original plan when I was thinking about covering Rose, and believe it or not, my original plan was to cover Rose in like episode five of this podcast. And I was going to cover it with the TV movie. Um, but, <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. But I was certainly not going to um, <clears throat> force Jack Graham to once again podcast the TV movie. <laughs> I was going to say, that would be my third time podcasting about the TV movie. And that's, I'm done. I'm done there. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I plan at the moment never to never to watch that again. <laughs> One of these days we're gonna cover it on Noise Spaceman, and and I'll and I you know I I don't know I've only seen it like I think. One and a half times, so it's it's not so bad for me. But I'm sure you've seen it many, many more times. So, um, Jack, I've, I've paid my dues there. You know, I've, I've. <laughs> you, you've... Please don't make me do it, please. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna give you the uh, Clockwork Orange treatment. You know, <laughs> yes, yeah. you to watch 
<laughs> the TV movie once again. So um, let's just uh, let's start with you, Jack, um, just uh, because I think Shane and I both discussed kind of how we came to the series. But obviously you grew up with the show. And so you would have yeah. seen this as a, you know, as a lifelong fan of Doctor Who. So uh, I, I guess uh, can you talk a little bit about the, your experience of like when the show came back and your feelings about it? Well, I was 29 a callow young 29 when this was on. And, you know, I, I feel like, a to, to be honest, I feel like a totally different person to that guy. You know, it's it's very difficult for me to relate to him because, you know, in, in a whole lot of very crucial ways, he was a dick. And, you know, frankly, I hated them when they were first on. Mm-hmm. I really fucking hated them because they, they were too different. They were too different to the show I loved. I don't know what the fuck I thought they, it was going to be like, really. I don't. But I, you know, it came on and well, I say I, I didn't hate the end of the world, but I hated Rose with a passion. You know, when it came on, I was a serious Rose skeptic, um, and I was, I'm afraid, for a, in my defence, brief period, I was one of those guys who would go on to Gallifrey, whatever it was at the time, outpost Gallifrey, it would have been back then. Um, you know, and sort of whinged about it. You know, and uh, I was never quite among the worst of them. In in my defence, you know, I was never one of these people that threw around the term Deus Ex Machina without realising what it really meant, and and so on. But um, yeah, I was certainly in that in that wing of things, and um, I was very excited when I heard it was coming back. When it it was going to be Russell T Davies, I was very excited um, because I'd liked his. I hadn't seen any of his telly, you know, mm. but I'd liked the the New Adventures novel he'd written during the Wilderness years. So that was yeah, okay, that's good. Uh, Chris Eccleston's going to be the Doctor. That's great. You know, I I, and I liked a lot of the the noises I heard coming out of the um, out of BBC Wales about what they were going to do with it. And then it came on, you know, and uh, I don't know. It was just too, I mean, Rose is, is a funny beast, that, that first episode. It's a, you know, I can look at it now with a lot of affection, and I like it very much now, very much more than I did at the time. And, um, but it's still a funny beast. It's, it's, a, it's a real curate's egg. There's some great stuff in it. There's some good stuff in it. There's some not-so-good stuff in it. And I think there's some, frankly, terrible stuff in it. It's really, you can see them, I mean, just between Rose and the end of the world, you can see them learning how to do it. And I think it's it's not a straight upward progression, but the entire first series is like watching them work out how to do it until you get to those those last two episodes, which, again, you, you said this and I agree that I, I love those on the whole. But, yeah, Rose is. Um, yeah, I, I, I had very little good to say about this at the time, but um, I can I can look at it now with a certain it does make me nostalgic. Um, even though the guy that I'm nostalgic for being was a dick, as I say. But uh, yeah, it does kind of watching it again in preparation for this for the first time for quite some time. It did make me kind of nostalgic for for the long lost days of 2005. Um, I think being a somewhat woke uh, white man in the uh, 21st century is to uh, consider your your cringy former self uh, with that mix of revulsion and affection. I think that's yeah, and I, I, I have I have that I was, response a lot, and often that cringy firmer self is the one from two weeks. So you know. Oh God, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, absolutely. But um, me in two thousand and five. Uh, oh dear. But um, yeah, I'm, I've, I feel like my personality has almost completely changed since then. To be, and my evaluation of series one has very, very drastically changed since then as well. Um, and, and possibly not unconnected, unconnected to the, the change in my politics. I was left wing back then, but I was kind of disorientated and confused about it. And I was nowhere near as up on, uh, uh, you know, um, some of the important things that I like to think I'm a bit more clued up on about now. And I, th- I don't think that's unconnected. But, yeah, maybe that, maybe we'll talk about that stuff later. I'm, I'm sure we'll get to that. <laughs> left wing politics on this podcast? No. Never. No, no surely not. Certainly not identity politics. Jeez, come on. <clears throat> Um, so, I, I, you know, a, a set of ideas I still have issues with, but um, yeah. 
Sure, sure, no problem. Um, you're off the bus. <laughs> Goodbye, sir. I've been I've been purged. <laughs> I'm not going there. Um, Shana. <clears throat> God. Yes. Uh, let's. Uh, I. I guess. Uh, I, tell me your remembrance of us discovering this show. Granted, I know that memory is kind of bullshit, and this is probably half fabricated by this point. But I have what seems to me a very clear memory of sitting, well, technically on the futon downstairs. I was watching TV, and they showed a little bit of a making of this episode of uh, End of the World. Uh, I actually saw End of the World was the first episode I saw of Doctor Who, period. As so very often happens on TV, they reshowed the episode. And so I saw like the ending bits of the end of the world and talking about the creature creation, which Jack and I just talked about last night. Um, yeah, this is really weird because we, we did all this last night. I know. Uh <laughs> <clears throat> there's a there's an upcoming like Shabcast time. where you can uh, see it's it's there's a timey wimey element cross promotion timey wimey um yeah but so you and I like clearly, to think of it more as a web planet than uh shut up um but you 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 both know my love for Jim Henson and any kind of puppetry and makeup so I was immediately like what the fuck is this how have I not seen it before how have I not heard of it before because I legit had not heard of Doctor Who before which I still kind of marvel at. And I wish my mom was still around because I would be like, how did you hear of this? Miss science fiction lover. Um, but yeah, so I remember watching it and uh, then being able to find it on cable or something and be like, Oh, okay, no, I want to sit down and actually watch all of this because it's available. And uh, trying to talk Daniel into watching it. And you were not um, very sold on, on it. Because these were not the first episodes you saw, or I mean, I guess they well, were. It was so. So sorry, but, we're just kind of talking about our history with it right now. But you know, no, that's but, sort oh, of the you know, like I would yeah. kind of sit off to the side on my computer, and then you would watch stuff, and I would kind of glance up and see it and go, "Well, that just looks really silly." And I don't remember having any other response to it than that. No, and that was that was really the extent of it. Is you kind of um, brushed it off like Disney Channel, and. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I brushed it off as children's like, I'm I mean, trying to I, remember I, what I else I've seen that, that. I had thought of seeing Christopher Eccleston before but I had I recognized him as a serious actor and a good actor and was just smitten with him I'm sure I've mentioned on the podcast before that like I seriously hated David Tennant in his first episode because I was never going to get over losing Nine as my doctor even though now I love David Tennant, uh, even though now I'm now having my own kind of emo woes with that era. But, you know, you, you live, you learn, you have different doctors for those periods of your life. But yeah, I, I don't think there was anything that could have been as jarring to me in watching it, though, uh, which I always think is interesting. The fact that, um, yeah, watching classic Who now and coming back to this, it is creating a very different tone. <laughs> But I mean, that's that's part of the reason I love the show. Yeah, there's elements of it that I, I see now turning into stuff that I don't like that's still in the show. I see a bit more of the dynamics that were introduced via Nine that have developed into the Moffat stuff that I now hate kind of coming back to it. But by and large, overall, I, these two episodes have... A, a lot of great points. I think End of the World is probably still one of my favorite episodes ever. And 
Rafalo is one of my favorite characters ever. <laughs> and she's hey. in it for what, five minutes? I don't know. She's not even in it. She's in it for maybe two minutes. And she's yeah. just so perfect. Um, but yeah, so I have I have a lot of feels. I have a lot of feels. I guess I'll I guess I'll again just just tell the I remember as a kid I had a friend like I was maybe 13 or 14 I had a friend who would like mention there was a show Doctor Who that he watched on PBS and I had no idea I was like what is that you know and I saw like as as kind of a, a teenager I had like very occasional references to it I might have seen like one like very brief moment of like a TARDIS on a string during the Tom Baker era aired on PBS. I mean, you know, literally 30 seconds of Doctor Who in my life. Until um, I remember sometime in the mid-2000s, there was, uh, I was flipping channels and or like watching the, like the channel listing guide. And I saw, oh, Doctor Who, this, like, and I'd heard people say nice things about the new series. And this would have been, um, well, you'll know which era this is because I said it's on the sci-fi channel. And I flipped to it. And it was the episode, um, it's in uh, The Long Game, and it's the scene where Adam and Rose are in the cafeteria chatting. That's the very first scene of Doctor Who I ever saw. And based on that, I thought, oh, this is a show about attractive 20-somethings traveling the universe on a spaceship. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, like, oh, that sounds interesting. I'll get back to that one day. And then clicked it off and, like, did not come back to it until, like, if that's the first scene of Doctor Who you see, you, you can imagine how I thought that. And then also how completely fucking wrong i was it's ridiculous how i had a very clear image of oh this is what this show is it's like 90210 in space okay cool well you know arguably under moffat you know a great chunk of the moffat era basically mm. was that you know mm. it was especially i mean when you get to like the i mean the amy rory stuff kind of does become that very much um in a lot of ways so mm-hmm. Yeah, which oh god we talk, let's not let's not get into that right <laughs> no, now i don't let's i don't not. but um <laughs> so there's no reason to even bring up moffat's like at this point we're supposed <laughs> to be doing the happy stuff right now let's let's just declare two names off limits we all know which which ones we're talking about no moffat and who trump oh, oh well, yeah okay fair okay that, that's fair enough yeah no i'm good with that yeah we, because they are as bad as each other yeah, exactly. In this household, <laughs> in this household, you better believe it, son. In fact, I, I think actually Stephen Moffat's worse. I don't know. Has he grabbed it? <laughs> vagina's late. All right, that's it. Moving on. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. So um, it's interesting that these episodes make us want to talk about our histories with the show. You know. Well, it's it's for me for me it's such a uh, watching or rewatching Rose. I mean, I think last night rewatching it for this podcast was really the first time I ever sat down and like looked at it critically. And not even I don't maybe because I came to the show as an adult, even though it's someone who like podcast Doctor Who and has watched all the classic series and knows quite a bit about Doctor Who at this point. I don't have that relationship with it that I think a lot of fans do, where it's like it is like that warm fuzzy blanket. You know, that just sort of like you just wrap it around you and just sit and watch old Tom Baker episodes just as comfort food. Um, yeah, I don't. Yeah. I mean, there there are. A I, I, couple feel, of... I, I feel the same way. I can't engage with it that way. To me, it brings up all sorts of you know the the feelings it brings up are far too complicated. Right. Because right. I I am an old fan. I grew up with the classic series. I was a I was a, I was a you know not just a viewer of the classic series. I was a fan of the classic series. I had all the VHS tapes. You know, growing up. You know, so I was I was I mean I, I freely say this, and I've said this before and other things. I'm I I'm over invested in this thing, and I was definitely definitely you know not aware 
of how much more overinvested I was back in 2005. You know, so it's it's impossible for me to extricate my extricate Rose from that sort of whole bundle of you know feelings yeah. of frustration and disappointment that came from being this sort of this overinvested fan. You know, right. um, but it's a it's a really it's a, it's a weird episode because it doesn't really feel it, it's it doesn't feel like an episode of Doctor Who at all, does it? And not really because it's all that different to what's around it, or even it it is very different in some ways to what the the new series became. But it's not that yeah. different. Um, but it's still it, I don't know. There's just something about its it's introductory tone, um, and yet it's sort of it's intense. It, it's weird relationship with the past. Well, you know, it's, th- this it's, is all the way through the first series. This this phobia of anything that's too linked to the past, while at the same time, you know, staking everything on people having some kind of lingering attachment to it. It's trying to square that circle of both kind of having the references to the to the old stuff while. Being being its own thing and being completely different, and I, I, and I, one of the reasons I do, <laughs> one day and we it's will weird discuss to see the show, TV the show now is... so obsessed with the past, you know, constantly referencing the past. It's so weird. It feels kind of disconnected from the rest of the show, past and future. Now, doesn't it? It does. I, it, I think for me, it's it, it's almost like the 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 oddness of Rose, the 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 story is that it's named Rose. It, it, it this is this is Rose's introduction to the Doctor, mm. and it's hypothetically R. I mean, for me, it was my introduction to the Doctor, you know. So, so I can I can definitely speak of it that way. I guess Shana saw End of the World first, so you know, less so. But well, that, that's the that's the genre game stroke media tactic that Russell T Davies is using. He is basically writing an episode of a sick, uh, not a sitcom, a. Uh, 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 a soap opera, although of course in in many ways it's very unlike a soap opera. But he's writing an episode of a soap opera which is about Rose and her family and friends, which you know the, the, the this a bit the bits of this old show Doctor Who crash into and kind of take over. So he's using that more familiar you know genre and style as a delivery system for the for the audience of 2005 right and i you know it's it's easy for me just to process this as i think for me what and this is <laughs> okay what, what i'm saying is that it's not aimed at me you know because oh, I'm, I'm, right. i've never been a soap opera one you know so that that's really where this this complicated feeling i have about it comes from I, I, you know at the time i wouldn't have been able to articulate this now i can i i can see what's going on i'm disoriented because it's it's my show quote unquote and it it definitely isn't my show it's something else that i you know, I just have no investment in. So it's this weird combination of something I'm incredibly over-invested in and something I'm not invested in at all. I'll tell you when the show got me, when the the thing, and, and this goes right to these sort of soap opera elements, because I think, I mean, you can view it as a, I mean, it's absolutely valid to view it that way. And I don't, I'm not arguing with that at all. I mean, it, it is Doctor Who, the show, invades a soap opera. Um mm. I process it, at least at the time, kind of maybe less genre, kind of thinking of it as a postmodern text, just thinking of it in terms of what it's doing. And kind of where this kind of links up thematically running through the series is one of my favorite moments in Doctor Who period of any of any bit is the uh, scene where uh, Eccleston, uh, the, the earth is turning and I can feel it, Rose. Like that's... Oh, yeah. yeah. One of... One of I mean, I... I still I get that chills. Yeah. That, that entire scene, but that speech that he gives, um, or that little soliloquy that he gives to, to Rose. Well, I, that, that, I actually uh, saw that scene before I saw the episode, because that scene was exerted 
almost in, entire in a clip that was on a that was on a promotional show before it before it aired. Oh, you nice! Know? And I remember I remember seeing that for the first time and just being blown away by it. Um, and I, I think maybe you know I was kind of disappointed that there was that the, the the whole episode when it arrived wasn't all like that. You mm. know, because it, it it flails wildly in terms of its tone. But I love that scene too. The thing I love most about that scene is the way after he's finished saying that he sort of does his his cheeky chappy thing that the ninth doctor has as kind of his armor, you know, his defense mechanism. And he gives her that big silly grin and waves the armature and says, bye-bye, you know, and walks off. And then you get a shot from the, it, it's, it, you get a shot of him from the other direction, walking away from her in the background and his face, he just looks absolutely stricken. Yeah. That's incredibly powerful, you know? Well, and I think for me that that's like, I understand your point of view of saying it feels soap opera E to you, but I mean, it, it definitely has, a fair bit of soap opera appeal it has the uh the shop girl and her her family and all of yeah. that but it, i think it also really plays like a soap opera but it looks like it looks like one but it also plays with this idea of of pacing where there is this idea that as a shop girl that montage we get at the beginning where we see her day-to-day life and she seems very busy and the city is very busy um and part of the <sighs> This is where I get within my own frustrations again of, of later on. But what what I really like about this season, and I know for, for you, Jack, you're saying that it feels a little bit messy, but I think there is a lot of taking these two polar perspectives where you have Rose representing this idea of like day-to-day life is busy, 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 but the busy, busy, busy is very small when compared to the... Um, world that the doctor brings and Mm. yet eccleston always has this kind of aura of of calm about him there's always like just a i don't know maybe it's his 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 big broad face and ears or whatever uh the tension of almost their their the rhythm of the two characters against each other is what appeals to me a lot yeah i agree I, i like that too because you get to see how much Rose's <clears throat> tempo uh, changes because of the Doctor. Well, it's not just uh, to, to just to, to highlight because you, yeah. you're 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 saying you're you're kind of right up to what I was going to say, and I want I want to just uh, yeah, go ahead. You know, it's the Doctor gives a cosmic perspective, a literally cosmic mm-hmm. perspective. You yeah. know, and in, into in the world, he, this is when your planet is destroyed, and it's all okay. The 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 world, you know, the the human race survives. Imagine. Imagine the impossible. What if all those things that you think are going to kill you aren't, and you survive, and you thrive? Mm-hmm. And the Doctor has that co- literally cosmic, this universal perspective. And yet, that is constantly contrasted with um, the sort of day-to-day that Rose lives in. That, that, you know, the, the, um, Rose's mother, Jackie, it very much, you know, she's, she's worrying about, well, you need to get your compensation, sweetheart. And, you know, that, that mm-hmm. shop was giving you airs and graces and the, the sort mm-hmm. of like the ordinary, um, we can talk about the social context of that. Yeah, I'm sure we will <laughs> bring that up at, at some point during this episode, but, um, Jackie and Rose and Mickey and the, in the sort of the, the ordinary, the soap opera side of it is very plugged into the mundane, the day to day and what the doctor gives Rose and what, by extension, the show is sort of giving the audience is this larger perspective. And that's so much of what science fiction, for me, just did growing up. Is well, and- it took me out of my ordinary kind of day-to-day, the, the realities of, of being a, a kid growing up in the middle of fucking Alabama, and uh, gave me this, this broader picture. And I think that that's what 
the doctor as a counterculture figure. The doc, you know, I mean, there are so many readings you can give of someone standing outside of being plugged into another culture, but standing outside of his own culture, of the culture he's embedding himself in, giving that uh, different and, and often better perspective. And like, let's look at what let's look at what all this means to you. And then he's still, also the he's, thing. Oh, and then still you can go get chips because. Chips are important too. You know? I'm yeah. sorry. Go go ahead, Shane. I, I... But he's also the thing that's bringing geeks together over the internet. This weird historical figure we get of uh, what's Clive. What's, Clive. Clive. You know this episode's kind of Sam Seely, uh, whose wife is surprised that the geek coming to talk <laughs> about the doctor is a girl this time. Yeah. Um, which yes, gender essentialism, whatever. It's cute. I don't mind it. Well, it uh, becomes. I mean, that really does become the dynamic of the new series, and I mean, it, it's really prophetic in a way that you know the, the the Doctor Who is is basically the fandom. You know, at least for a while, was basically made up of middle aged men and thirteen year old girls. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there you go. Uh, but you know, and I like that. That's what the Doctor is. Um in this series it's he is a a weird figure that is mysterious and not much is known about and he's always been that but he definitely seems to have a following in the newer episodes that i don't know that i ever saw in the same way in classic who um and that's clearly from the beginning there's not much in classic who that sort of suggests that anybody's heard of the doctor Right, it really isn't. Um, I mean, they like know the Pertwee years. The Pertwee years, you get a little bit like that's a little bit. That's again yeah. when the Doctor is plugged into a particular time and place, which he usually yeah. isn't. So, sorry, didn't mean to go ahead. But it's um, I I I do like that the, the the way in which people have heard of him in Rose is as this sort of hidden figure. I like the I like the way that he's plugged into history, but that he's plugged into a kind of hidden history mm-hmm. that that people have to do a kind of archaeology to to find you know and it takes the form of kind of this guy who's sort of a conspiracy theorist and sort of a crank and so on but yeah i mean i think the show the show is you know you, you have the thing at the end with rose saying you know i i haven't got a job i haven't got any future you know and i've got my gymnastics medal okay it's a bronze but you know this the, it kind of has this you know there's lots of noises in it that i don't like but some of the noises in it that i do like are kind of hooray for the world's bronze medalists you know and uh, mm. i think that's what the clive thing is doing as well this guy is uh you know he, he he is a bit odd and he is a bit weird and he is a bit geeky and he, you know, but he is one of the world's bronze medalists and he has got it right essentially and uh you know he's done that by plugging into history and doing his own digging and his own thinking and stuff like that that's that's nice um and of course i like to reference jfk right there in yeah but one. they they have they they have um, sound effects, you know, they gunshot sound effects, and there's only three of them, so they got it right. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and I I like I mean what you were saying before about the Doctor bringing the global perspective. I like the interplay in this in Rose between the Doctor's perspective and Rose's perspective because the Doctor definitely brings the big picture. You know, he's trying to save the entire planet, and he talks about or all you all you lot do is you know chips and watch telly while all the time underneath you there's a war going on and i i really respond to that it's a bit it's a bit condescending but it's it's a sentiment that really chimes with me um but the the problem with him is that he is focused on the big picture at the expense of you know the people it actually affects so when rose starts to cry in the tardis he thinks it's about him and actually she's just realized that you know since that mock mickey wasn't mickey he's been captured does that mean he's dead you know and he forgets about mickey he keeps forgetting about mickey over and over again because he's focused on the big picture so what rose brings is the is the is the human perspective um you know there's there's problems with the way it's done but i like the idea that these two need each other to sort of supply the deficiencies deficiencies in each other's perspectives 
you know, there's this kind of a this kind of a discomfort built into that for me. Well, well maybe not me now, but me in 2005, because you know the fact that the idea that the the Doctor might need the companion to supply his perspective that he lacks, you know, and the companion can save him and so on. There's kind of an implicit reproach to the classic series built into that because the classic series really, I mean. Every now and again, like the first year or so with Ian and Barbara bringing the doctors, you know, sort of educating the doctor in the human perspective, and then kind of again at the end with Ace. But that's really, that's really the only time in the classic series where they did anything like that, you know. There's a real, um, there's a real attempt to, and, and this is something that, that Davies has said in interviews, to, to bring uh, that first 1960s, to kind of bring some of that atmosphere back. And I think that's, that accounts for some of the serialization, some of the, being much more, I mean, I was going to say slightly more, it's much more embedded in the sort of uh, then, well, the 21st century kind of here and now um, than uh, the show had ever been before. I mean, even during the Pertwee years, you're not getting, you know, the Doctor being really plugged in and having like a family or, you know, being, you know, you yeah. don't know, like Mike Yates doesn't have a mom that's like hanging about, you know. Um, Funny that the, the very first episode, An Unearthly Child, is very plugged into the here and now, and you get these two. You know, it's it's you see it, you see the whole thing unfold from the perspective of Ian and Barbara. The show is mm-hmm. about Ian and Barbara to start with, and their perspective on events, and they're very grounded in, in a particular time and place, and they're working people, and they have a they have an obvious relationship outside of work, and so on. You know, and then kind of the minute that has got the show into the TARDIS, the TARDIS zooms off into time and space, and that's dumped. You know, so when you say it's mm-hmm. like. Davies is consciously trying to do that 1963 thing. He really is trying to do something that's kind of the 21st century equivalent of that very first episode, isn't yeah. he? Except mm-hmm. that he's sticking with it instead of ditching it immediately, which has its, you know, it has its, pro, its pros and its cons. It, there's so much I like about it. And again, it's hard for me almost to talk about it really objectively because it is how I was introduced to the show in so many ways. And I, I really like Jackie. Uh, so, uh, I get to like Jackie. I don't like her. Yeah. Well, I, <laughs> but it's not so much that I don't like the character. I don't. I have problems with the representation. Oh, well, that's yeah. fair. I, I, I mean, I like little moments with her of her uh, trying to flirt with the doctor and be like, "Oh, anything could happen," and him just kind of looking and be like, "No." Um, I, I like that there is an honesty in their humor, and that there is a lot of uh, just kind of brash moments. And yeah, that evens out in their future interactions, and it should. Um, but it's nothing that turns me away immediately. Obviously, I liked it. Uh, <laughs> but honestly, I, I think so much of it, I do kind of dismiss as just like, okay, well, this is standard getting to know you first episode stuff. I, I am always happily surprised how much I love Rose's music, which it's... It's really everywhere if you pay attention to it. Her theme is just drenches this first series. Oh, the the sort of Ennio Morricone <laughs> yeah. singing no. singing lady thing. The The Roses theme, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, I love that too. Although the the music at the the incidental music at the opening with the opening montage is fucking unbearable. Yes, you know? but it, it, oh, it does I, get it I, does get better. Oh, I love that. I, I love it. Oh. I, I love. I'm sorry. I just have this affection for it. It's such a such a great like you know little. Like, but I, I mean, I don't know. It's it's such, like it just I buy it within its context. <laughs> but I get the feeling that it's meant to do that. Like it's meant to be like oh here's the obnoxious city music. 
Um, I don't know. Isn't it better now that we're uh, being attacked by Autons, so we don't have to listen to that music anymore? That's what... <laughs> yes, that's closer to the kind of music that I was doing. We're talking about all these things I'm trying to say. Should we actually talk about the narrative of this episode, or are we already ready to go on and, and go to the next episode? Um... We'll talk about any, anything you like. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I do... How do I... I, d- I don't like the Autons in this. Yeah. And maybe that's why I focus so much just on the character moments and the little familial moments is because that's what I do like in the, in this episode. Um, but yeah, it's hard for me because I knew <laughs> I had already seen the end of the world and I was like, oh, it's going there. So this is the Earthy McEarth Earth episode because the next episode is going to be <laughs> Alien City. Um yeah. I I I love that I love that now we have done all of the Auton episodes of the of the series because we've already done Spearhead and uh, Terror. There you go. So. Yeah. Have you done the Have you done the Moffat Auton episodes? Have you done Big Bang and uh, whatever it's called? Actually, big, yes, we did bang. do we did do the Big Bang Pandora go open. So we did. That you did. Ah, well. Okay. Yeah. I don't count that as a as a as a true uh, Auton episode, but yeah. like uh, if uh, you don't have dummies and shop windows. Well, so. but no, so yeah, that's I the agree. thing, right? Done well in it. But this is the thing, like the autons in this are not scary. Um, And I had to have people explain to me later, much, much later and many, many times um, because they're like, oh, no, the original autons. Oh, fucking scary. Oh, fucking autons. Ah. And I'm like, really, though, how could anything be scary Um, if it's anything similar to that? Um, (laughs) I saw it when I was six years old. That's why. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But I mean, even <laughs> and, this, and this... what we what this episode needed was uh, some some poison spewing daffodils, plastic daffodils. That's and a demon poo baby. Isn't that the same episode? That, that, that's yes. Uh, yeah. Where is my fucking demon poo baby? What what it what it needs is the moment from Terror of the Autons where the Doctor rips off a policeman's face, and you yes. have that blank thing underneath. You know, that's that's not there in this. This is. There are some moments in this that are well directed, like Rose's first entrance into the TARDIS and, and the scene, the mm. turn of the earth scene. A lot of this is really quite badly done, I'm afraid. That the I, I, I can see what the director's going for because there's a lot of comedy in the script, so he goes for a lot of comedy direction. And some of it lands, but a lot of it doesn't. And he, he I think he badly fumbles the Auton scenes. You know, he, he shoots them as sort of comedy actions. And it really should be shot as horror. Like well, that's how it's it shot in in Spearhead from Space. It's shot like a horror movie. I think um, there's a challenge. I mean, I think that kind of the big. I mean, one of the things that people always talk about is the bad CGI. Which I mean, if you're gonna watch Doctor Who and I talk don't. about bad CGI, I I don't care. You, you've got I've got nothing. I've got nothing against I, I, the burping. The even the burping um, trash can. My problem. Mean, my know. problem with the the CGI monster at the end is not that it's bad CGI. It's that it doesn't have tentacles. That the nesting consciousness should be this big. Uh, incoherent mass of tentacles you know? right but that's i have my own weird reasons so, well, you know, I, don't, I was I, going to say tentacles <laughs> is very specific jack um <laughs> well i think i think i think and i'm gonna i'm just gonna put a button on something you were saying there jack i think that the issue that i think the real thing that people are saying when they say the cgi is bad or the the effects are bad is not necessarily i mean there are people who just complain about bad special effects because they're idiots but um <laughs> yeah you yeah, quote me out of context on that. um <laughs> How, sorry, how could context change that? Yeah, that's true. It, yeah. It's storytelling, though. There, There is yeah. a bit of the story is just not focused on the bad guys. I'm not really scared of the bad guys. The bad guys are kind of filler for must-have motivation um, in certain scenes. 
Yes, they that's true. Well, Doctor Who is always, I mean, and this is this is throughout the history of the show, you know, it's always trying to strike this balance of being funny and scary and mm-hmm. interesting and, you know, and, and character-based. And it's, it's trying to do a lot of different things at once. It's it's playing with tone in really interesting ways, which is, I think, what draws, it certainly draws me to Doctor Who. Um, and I think that Rose, I think that, I guess what I'm saying is, like, it's not so much like, oh, it's bad CGI, therefore it's bad. It's that it's played explicitly for laughs, and yet it's trying to be funny at the same time. And it's not it's not able to strike that balance at all. It just kind of comes across as ridiculous. And I think that when I first saw the show, you know, a lot of the issues that kind of turn me off of it are, well, it seems like kids TV because there are no stakes. Because it's just kind of like set up like a broad comedy. And it's and it's very uh, brightly, you know, sort of, it looks like, you know, silly low budget TV, which it is. But then it's got that like beating heart at the center of it, which is, you know, the doctor and, and Rose and their relationship and all that other stuff, which kept me going until I like suddenly kind of got, okay, this is what the show is really trying to do. I think that's a more substantive criticism is to say it's not even that it's not scary, but that it doesn't really know when it's supposed to be scary and when it's supposed to be. Well, it tries to be scary, like the initial sequence with Rose in the in the empty stock room, you know, that sort of mm-hmm. um, that place that's normally bustling with activity after hours, all dark and silent, you know, like the like the downstairs of the house in the middle of the night or the school when everybody's gone home. That's a particular kind of creepy. Um, it does that fairly well. Um, and then the the. I don't know. There's one bit that's genuinely creepy, which is that when they're in the lift, the autons are sort of clamoring outside, and one of the blank, expressionless rubber faces is kind of just banging against the open door of the lift. That's kind of blah, you know. But the rest of it, it it just fails to be spooky. And the ironic, the ironic thing is that whereas the the attack scene later on fails because it's it should be directed like horror, but it's directed like hom- comedy action. Um, that scene in the stockroom fails because he tries to do the horror thing. He tries to do the sort of um, you know that there's something in the in the dark. There's something spooky going on, jump scare sort of horror, um, and it just mishandles it really badly. Um, and it, I think it does fundamentally stem from what you from what you were saying before, which is that this this script is just fundamentally not interested in the monsters. They're there to just because they need them, you know. The story of this episode is not the Autons. No. It's Rose. Yeah. So, I mean... And it's open about that. But... It's open about that, but I'm trying to think... Uh, unearthly Child. Yeah. Are there any bad guys in it? Does anything really happen other than... <laughs> There's one bad guy, and he's the lead character <laughs> in Unearthly <laughs> Child. Right. And honestly, something like that would probably have been more effective, and I... I I don't know if it would have alienated the audience. Maybe it would, but I, I it kind think, of well, well would it have alienated the producers? Is that a, an episode that they could have done? I I mean, and that's kind of what I start thinking about is well, why did they try to do all of this instead of if they wanted to have a feeling of an unearthly child where you're getting really invested in this character and fo- figuring out this mystery of you know an earthly child at Susan mm. and, and her grandfather and the the teachers going after them. I could have seen a similar dynamic of just getting invested in Rose and the Doctor and her crossing paths for an episode without really getting to the point of introducing um, a villain until we get to um, a part two or or, or the second episode. Um, clearly, there it would have been very, very different at that point. Um, but I, I also don't think that they probably uh, would have gotten away with making that. Because um, no, television works fundamentally differently now to how it exactly. did. Exactly. 63 um 
But even so, I think they kind of because it's one of the frustrating things about Rose is it's full of these sort of half measures, you know, things that sort mm. of are half done and half start. Like the idea of the, the making the Doctor the point of the episode. Well, Rose is the point of the episode in the sense that she's the viewpoint character, mm-hmm. and the antagonist, so to speak, is the Doctor. He's the one that she's tracking down, and you kind of get some of that in that she's trying to look him up on you know the internet, and she on finds Clive and he tells him or something. <laughs> yeah, some, some with silly... the, the, yeah. The Eye of Horus logo, I noticed this time. Um, but yeah, she 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 tracks him down to Clive, who's got all this stuff about him being this historical mystery, and then he gives her the speech about how the Doctor brings death with him. They kind of half do that, and then it gets abandoned, you know? Like, one of the things about Series 1, I love Series 1. I would say, overall, it's probably my overall favourite of all series, of all the, the new series. Mm. Um, but one thing I really, you know, now I kind of understand where they were in their heads at the time, but one of the things that I find frustrating about it now, and it it does create a weird alienation effect, is how terrified they are of alienating the mm. um, with uh, end of the world being a noble exception, I would say. But um, yeah, there's something about yeah, I, I would have I would have liked to have seen more in that vein where the Doctor is kind of the antagonist and Rose is the hero, and he's the alien that the, mm. the stakes of the episode are built around. Because the bits of the episode that are that are about that, they're far more interesting than any of the stuff about the, the, the badly done Autons. Well, and honestly, if you think of the episode as a story and you take out the Autons, it becomes a much more interesting episode. Well, you'd have more Granted, time to kind of do that, like, you know, <laughs> Rose Tyler girl detective stuff, you know? <laughs> like, exactly. Not, not to belittle that. I mean, I think that would be interesting. I don't know. I think the Autons are there just to be, like, placeholder but I'm, bits, They're a MacGuffin. You know? yeah. I'm the also the one who likes the one episode where, <clears throat> where we get our a little band of adventurers researching the Doctor, and nobody else likes that one episode, Love so maybe I'm... Oh, I, like that. I like that episode. I, I like Love and Monsters, so... Yeah, okay. But we're well, the weirdos. We all, we're the we all like Love and Monsters. <laughs> and we're weirdos. We're not, we're not real Doctor Who. That's really the thing, because we like Love and Monsters. <laughs> oh, thank God. Thank God. <laughs> thank God I'm no longer a real Doctor Who yeah, fan. Yeah. Thank God I grew up. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the official one, and I will say this on mic right now. Again, I prefer Fear Her to Blink. But uh, you know, no one agrees with that opinion. Oh no, I I prefer Fear Herling. You and I are the same on that. I do like Blake, but I don't like the angels in general. Anyway, I can honestly say I prefer Fear Her to Blink simply because Fear Her is so badly done. Um, You're concept- wrong, Jack. You're wrong. <laughs> Conceptually, I prefer Fear Her to Blink. Um, in execution, not so. Um, can we talk about the episodes you're talking about again? Yeah, why not? Let's do that. Why, why go back on topic? Yes, please. So I do want to ask Jack about the Every Planet Has a North bit. Um, he did refer to himself being from the South earlier uh, before we were recording. And we had a, a, a light chuckle about uh, Daniel and Jack both being from the South. Very different Souths, but yes. In a, Very different, in different Souths. Uh, I just want to kind of, since I don't know how often we talk about this. Or Jack, are they? <laughs> Sorry. Shut up. Jack! Yes. I'm trying to ask you a question. Yes, uh, ma'am. Can you speak to, as, as a classic fan, as somebody who came to this as having seen it before, was it that big a deal that he had a different accent? Um, uh, was that I, joke, like, hilariously funny on point to you, or...? 
I, I kind of, it, it wasn't hilariously funny to me at the time because I was kind of grumpy about the whole thing. Um, but I, I wasn't grumpy specifically about the Doctor having a Northern accent. Um, and it, you know, in retrospect, I do think that's a funny line. There's all sort that's a very loaded line. And you know, mm. one of the things I always say is if if every planet has a North, you know, then we know from the classic series that that uh, every planet certainly has a fucking South. Um, you know, and and middle classes as well. Every planet has a Southern middle class, according to the classic series. That that much is certain. Um, yeah, I, I wasn't particularly on board with it at the time just because I was overly grumpy um, about the whole ah. thing. But no, I, I never had a problem with, with you know, the Doctor having a northern accent. And I, I loved, you know, the idea of him being played by Chris Eccleston. Overall, I really liked the performance from the start. Um, I, I think, yeah, for some people, I, I, I never actually saw much of that. Maybe I'm wrong, but I never saw much of that in, in fan culture, much sort of, uh, he shouldn't be from the north myself. Um, I know Eccleston himself, was a little bit defensive about it. He, in some of the interviews he did about the the series, you know, promoting it, he he would sort he would talk about, you know, um, you know, it's 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 good for it's good for the Doctor to not have an RP accent this time. And he would talk about being a kid watching television and everybody had an RP accent and nobody talked like him, which is all totally fair enough. You know, I mm-hmm. I, I think that's very true and and very fair comment. Um, because really, it's only startlingly recently that you start to hear anybody on British television who doesn't talk well, who doesn't talk like me, frankly, um, who who isn't a kind of comedy fool, you know. Um, but yeah, I, I I think maybe he he was defensive of it um because there was a lot of comment about it in the media you know it was it was much more a thing in the media i think than it was mm-hmm. in uh, amongst fans although mm-hmm. i could be being too kind to fans I, there i kind of get the um, feeling it's more him as an actor feeling like less about doctor who as a <laughs> franchise and more about what he was what he had yeah. faced in his, in his career in terms of i think it's to... a bit of an it's a bit of an axe to grind for him. And I don't, I don't say that negatively either. I don't blame him for having that axe. To... Okay. I, I've just been curious about it. Cause he does talk about it in, in interviews. Cause I have, <laughs> I do remember going and looking at those. So it's more interesting that that might just be a crest, uh, Eccleston kind of. Yeah. Horror. You know, Michael Caine has it's, said it's a... very similar things about, about coming of age and being an actor with his accent as well. Oh, mm-hmm. I bet. Yeah. Oh God. The, the snobbery of voice and accent in, in Britain. Yeah, it's a big thing. I until I started engaging with um, actual British people watching the show, all of that went completely over my head. I mean, even now, I don't have a really good ear for it. Just uh, you know, this is I. The, the, you're you're gonna laugh at me. It's just like, oh, they have a British accent, and that's as far as my brain process. Yeah, you know. Well, that is that's it's, just, it's exactly the same for us. I mean, people in Britain speak uh, unselfconsciously about the American accent as if it's one thing, <laughs> right? Like you know, Boston, New York, Chicago, Alabama. You know, it's, it's all one American accent. You know, they speak Yankee over there. I'm yeah. just thinking of like the difference in how far away those cities are just physically compared to how far away your north and south are, Jack. Yeah, but it's not it's not to do with size; it's to do with no. scale. Yes, um, and it's to do with uh, history and sociology and stuff like and that. Elitism. It's funny we talked about this in the very first Oy Space Man I did because that was did about we? yeah because that was about uh, spare parts, spare parts. Mm-hmm. and we talked about the fact uh, that the Hartley family have uh, have northern accent because um, it's it's very they're very specifically coded as working class um, and the the northern accent has because it's ridiculous to say that you know everybody in the north is is working class but you know that right. in in media certainly the northern accent is coded that way you know it has those kind of associations. 
which is of course why it's been systematically kept out of uh, you know uh, you know elite British culture and, and BBC media and so on for for decades and decades. Um, but I yeah I, I never had a, a, a problem with the Doctor having a Northern. I mean he's had a Scottish accent before, so what the fuck right. you know. <laughs> um, and would again. Um, and why shouldn't he? Why shouldn't he have a, a northern accent? Is that, I mean, it's no, it's no more ridiculous for him to have a northern accent than it is for him to have a southern accent. You know, which oh, is yeah. what the no, which is what I, the lots of planets have a north jive actually gets at. Oh, I completely agree. I, I mean, I think it's funny. I don't really like. I'm. I think I can tell the Irish versus the Scottish versus the English, but. Once we Could get past tell, that on nuance, I it gets lost on me mostly. Did you tell Geordie from Brummage? <laughs> Geordie no? from Brummage? Geordie is the character Ge- on Star Trek, that's all I know. <laughs> and Brummage, wasn't that a uh, novel by uh, Henry James? No, it wasn't. I'm, I I'm know, making actually. a very I'm, terrible I'm joke. It's, that was James. a really bad joke. I love you. <laughs> okay, moving on. Yeah. yeah. I love that Rose is very specifically working class, that she's a young working class girl. Um... Uh, I, you know that's the that's the good side of the whole uh, soap opera thing. You know, it grounds it in this really um, this very working class world. You know, this very this world of ordinary people. She lives on a housing estate and she works in a shop and stuff like that. I I love that about it. That's something that's never really happened in the series. I mean, there's there's Ace, but you know, it's not as specific with Ace. And of course, the actresses. You know, the politics of accent again. Mm-hmm. The actress's accent is very middle class as she tries to do this sort of you know housing estate kid voice and she does she does fairly okay but you can't ever quite get past the fact that sophie aldred is 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 not from the same background as as ace you know mm. um whereas i mean billy, i don't think billy piper is really from the same background as rose but she does a better job of it let's say um she does a great billy piper fucking awesome you know right. from the beginning oh, god she yeah. she's but, billy i i have the to say, jewel there... of series there is so much that I like just about that scene. Her waking up in bed and looking like a, a fucking teenager waking up in bed, despite the fact that, yes, her hair is still really perfect and her makeup and everything. <laughs> but it looked like a teenager's bedroom. I like that she dresses like a teenager. Um, one thing that I was really focused on, I miss the characters wearing fucking normal clothes. I <laughs> I really appreciate how fucking cute Jenna Coleman looks all the time. Um, and on point and trendy and all that kind of stuff. I appreciate it, but I like that Rose is not dressed super cute. Um, her pants kind of are ill-fitting. Uh, yeah, there's because it, like, it looks like shops. It looks it looks like shop clothes. You know, it looks like stuff she's bought off the rack in a shop. And it looks like we are meant to feel like that could be us. Yeah. Um, even though it's Billy Piper and she's gorgeous and, uh, you know, she had her own career beforehand. So it's not like she was um, a nobody that was like being discovered by Doctor Who. Um, there was I would say there was far more adverse fan reaction to Billy Piper being cast than there was to, you know, the Doctor having a northern accent. Right. Far more. Yeah. I mean, because you know. it's like, oh, you're putting a pop star on Doctor Who. Yeah, yeah. that's going to go great, yeah. Mel. Ooh, you know, yeah. snobbery. Yeah. Yeah. And snobbery that. about the snobbery around the character of uh, Rose generally. You know, like, there's I, lots of sort of negative reaction to her. But you know, fans are going on, oh, she's a chav. You know, that's that's stuff. something. That's something that I think I I, I did want to kind of get to this, but um, so so yeah, let's. I, the idea that she's coded particularly like is and and chav. I mean, to me, I don't know that word at all, except for within the context of talking about you know Doctor Who. Well, chav. Um, I mean, chav is to what degree chav is, is that a anti- slur? That's I think that's very much a slur. Chav is anti-working class hate speech. I think. Okay. It's 
it's part of the cultural denigration. Um, well, there's a guy who wrote, I mean, Owen Jones, the right, the left wing writer. You know, I have serious problems, with Mr. Jones, but I do broadly recommend a book. He, he wrote an entire book about this, and that you know, if I give you the full title, it'll give you some some clue as to what his thesis is. The full title of the book is Chavs: The Demonization of the Working Class, um, and that's totally what that is. That is a mean, nasty term that was very. It's less common now, but at the time, it was really, really culturally hegemonic. That term, it was everywhere in this I, nasty, I kind of... spiteful way, and it's aimed. It's misogynistic as well because it's aimed specifically at young white working class women. I kind of um, connect so to the word ghetto in a lot of ways, or trailer yeah, trash. Yeah, kind of. You know, um, yeah, it very. Well, yeah, I, very much. It's kind of our equivalent of trailer trash or white trash. Yeah, although it, it is very specifically gendered and it's to do with age as well. And part of it is well, she's got the chunky makeup. It, her makeup is not is a little bit over bit over the top. Um, there's lots of performative parts of Chav culture. And I mean, this is, again, yeah, I was introduced to Chav by, by Doctor Who haters um, and had to kind of go on my own little research adventure. Visually, I feel like that whole idea that Rose is coming from this corner of the world that she's just, you know, she's not a popular kid. She's from the wrong part of town. She's dating Mickey, who is kind of a joke. I mean, he gets to be more serious in later episodes, but man, is he just a total joke in this episode yeah. of just like, I am a bumbling boy character who then turns into plastic and she doesn't even realize. <laughs> I know, I know your, I know your uh, place of employment just blew up and you're like stressed and all, but there's a football match on. I need, I need to really go get a drink now. Like, yeah. That's, but that's such a that's such a Mickey thing. Like it's it's such a I don't know. It feels so in character for him and for her to just be like, "That's fine, go ahead." I, I get it. I'm so torn on that because it's a bit gender essentialist, but it's also it's quite a scathing, you know, and and quite a well earned. I have to admit, a, you know, jab at a certain type of guy. Um, I'm afraid. <laughs> well, and you know, I forgive a lot of what Mickey does just because he grows up, and we get to see that later. He gets um, a lot better, yes, and so does Noel Clark because really, he's yeah. he's not so good at this. <laughs> no, and but and so does Rose. I feel like you are right, um, Jack, in that I think a lot of the first series is them getting their footing, and you get to feel it kind of grow into what it wants to be. Uh, it has to try some things out first. But, it, you know, it's hard for me, again, to look at it completely objectively looking back because I, I watch it and I think, but I know where it's going. I, I know what this is setting them up to in so many ways. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, I'm happy with yeah. that. Yeah, you, you can't <laughs> help but, but read it in the in the context of, you know, what happened afterwards. Yeah. Well, and with a modern TV perspective, I mean, you know, they, they know they've got 13 episodes, so they don't have to do it all at one time. Mm -hmm. Mickey can be a bit of a shit at the beginning and become a become a more fully realized character in episode I think five in in um, World War Three. This this series really, I mean, it, it does the it does the the character growth thing. I think really really very well. Um, so, you know, better than a lot of subsequent seasons. Um, mm -hmm. you know, by the time you get to Bad Wolf, Parting of the Ways, you feel like you've been on a journey with these people, and you feel like they've grown. I mean, it's 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 good. It's well, good. You, you feel, it's Rose certainly grows. I mean, the, I mean, this is another thing. I, this is another problem I have. Rose 
Rose really feels like somebody who's grown up. You know, she's kind of self-centered in in in, in Rose the the mm-hmm. episode, and it's not judgmental because I think overall that the the episode is very pro Rose. You know, it's very admiring her of her. As I say, it's about you know hooray for the bronze medalists of the world. Um, mm-hmm. She's great, but it's also not starry-eyed about her. She's a bit selfish. She's you know she just dumps. I mean, Nick Mickey's selfish too. You know, he tries to hug her to stop her going with the doctor because totally self-absorbed, and she just dumps him and says, oh, you know, and doesn't think about what he's going to tell her mum or anything like that. But, yeah, you, you, and then you get the wonderful speech in the, in the uh, parting of the ways, you know, about, you, you, you know, you just, you can't just sit around eating chips, you know, chips being one of the motifs of series one. Mm-hmm. Um, and then one of, the, one of the problems I have with what happens subsequently is that so much of Rose's growth and maturing um, is kind of squandered, you know, because she's she's learning how to cope with her life as it is and to turn it into something meaningful. And then she just gets everything back. You know, she gets a substitute doctor when she can't be with the doctor anymore. She gets a substitute dad back and so on. Yeah. And that's why I really don't like the end of series two. But that's a separate issue. What can I just mention the uh, the, the Cushing movie doors inside the TARDIS? Um I love, I love those that that it's got the sort of white negative doors on the inside of the TARDIS, mm, right. like like the like the Cushing movie TARDIS. I love that. The inside of the TARDIS generally that looks so simple and small now, doesn't it? That prop at the time, I remember it yeah. looked amazing. Well, um, and I am very much a fan of this color scheme, and also there's something about Eccleston's TARDIS that feels a little bit of a work in progress, like he's in the middle of an upgrade. Some things kind of hanging off, not quite as much as Tennant's TARDIS. Um, but yeah, I, I love the coppery tones and that the support beams, I guess, are are a bit curvy. That it it's a spaceship, but it's not all um, right angles. There's some I just, kind of I just love the degree kind that of it organic. looks grown. It looks like it was grown from something, as yeah. the TARDIS yeah. is supposed to have been. So yeah, yeah. and it yeah. breathes as well. It has that breathing sound in the background. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Uh, what else do I like? One thing struck me rewatching it is that the London Eye is brought into it, you know, and you have that sequence which goes on one beat too long where the Doctor fails to realise the significance of the London Eye. But then the thing is about that, they bring the London Eye into it and then they do nothing with the London Eye after that. Whereas an episode now, I mean, the London Eye would then become where the, the denouement of the story happened and you'd have the Doctor sort of clamp, clamp, climbing around on top of it and jumping from carriage to carriage and dangling off of it and stuff like that. It's so casual the way they just bring the London Eye into it and then dump it. Um, well, but aren't then why they not? hypothetically supposed to be under it? They're underneath it, yeah. But yeah. they wouldn't do that now. They'd actually have it happening on the London Eye, you know. Well, um, isn't that I, an issue of budget, darling? I kind of <laughs> so get, sure yeah. get the idea they had like one, like a half day's filming around the London Eye instead. Yeah. <laughs> so Outside we get, we get that. The, 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 in, in 2005, the version of that you get is that one shot where they pan up to it and go, "Look, we were actually here." That's that's all yeah, the. Uh, that's right. That's, that's all you we get. Have, you know? Otherwise, well, we're, this... otherwise we're like you know several hundred feet away that's, that's the that's the only one shot we get at this point the show is still excited about the fact that they're doing a night shoot you know right. <laughs> we're going on location guys this yeah get a load of this <laughs> <laughs> we've got camera moves no proscenium staging here fancy oh, stuff bless. <laughs> oh, oh bless bless their little hearts um, uh, one, one other thing I like about Rose is that the Doctor, I mean, the, the, I think the Autons are squandered, but the Doctor does kind of get a little speech about how they want our planet because it's full of, you know, well, basically, I mean, he it's not what he says, but basically they want our planet because it's full of industrial capitalism. You know, I, I, I like that. It's a little nod, at least. Um, 
Oh, yeah. and, I, and I love the uh, the moment where he says, like, I, she says, just dump the anti-plastic in and let's run away. And he says, no, I've got to give them a, I've got to go talk to them and give them, like, a chance to run away. And so, yeah. yeah. Like Which is such a, it's such a, it's it's a small, obvious moment because heroes don't do that, you know? <laughs> heroes don't dump yeah. in the anti-plastic. But it's such a, a clear thing about this is who the Doctor is. It's such a... It does a lot of good work to establish the foundations of who the Doctor is, of who Rose is, and how she's going to inspire change in the Doctor. I mean, my one of my favorite things about Rose is the fact that her first real interaction with the Doctor is him saying, why do you think it's students? The Doctor makes Rose explain how she got to that conclusion. He doesn't care that she's wrong. All he cares is that she's thinking about it, and she's not just somebody who's going to let things happen to her so that by the time we get to um the end where there's the anti-plastic and the which i don't know anti-plastic just kind of <laughs> it's it's the magic goo that makes the bad guys die. Like, i mean you know, yeah <laughs> um that's a real fuck you to the audience but it's kind of a it, it's not a it's not a nasty one is it it's just no it's it's like a, a very classic sci-fi thing it's I the, think. It's like the, oh sure it's installing the virus on the uh independence day spaceship that uh, makes them good <laughs> In right. this vial here, I have I have some plot end a mole. <laughs> <laughs> I have I have a Deus Ex Machinum, Machinium. Yeah. Whoa, careful! Oh, I don't know where I was going, but yeah, you, you were know. saying that um, by you know he he makes her explain her theory about the students. Yeah, so there's a lot of the morality of the Doctor being set up in this episode. Of you, f- he has to give people chances. He has to see that you are thinking for yourself that there's something going on with you. Uh, You're not just kind of accepting fate as it is handed to you for you to be an interesting person to him. Um, He could easily ask anybody he wants aboard the TARDIS and he asks Rose. And I think that even though there's a lot that goes to waste in the episode, ultimately I'm, I'm always going to like the story of the shop girl getting asked to go on the adventure. Mm. Um, So I, you know, Am I the target audience in in a lot of ways? Absolutely. Uh, so I like it for a lot of reasons that I know you're not going to like it. Um, but I think that that's part of New Era Who for me is if it makes enough sense, even if it's not that good um, at all times, if it makes enough sense in context overall, I, I'm, I, I, I kind of like the nod of trying to open the door to the fandom and, and let more people in a bit. Um Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. But so much of this episode, so much of Rose for me is they're establishing all of these little character details and notes. Um, but it, it has kind of a, a jumping off feel to it. Like, this is not the actual episode. <laughs> you know, this is this is not what you, you've actually come to see. It's just the precursor to the rest of the series. And I think that's a good place to uh, move on to the end of the world, which if uh, Rose teaches us, uh, kind of gives us the background of these characters and um, situation and kind of gives us the, the here and now, end of the world gives us that cosmic perspective by literally destroying the planet Earth. <laughs> and everybody's kind of cool with it. Um, so uh, talking about this episode, so much stuff, so many great characters. Um some problems with it just because, you know, Rose becomes a power monkey for the last third or so, and that's not cool. But I think that's kind of in order to give us some of these other great characters. And I think we all really just want to talk about how great Rafalo is for a minute. Um, so, Shana, why don't we start with you? Tell, tell me about Rafalo. Rafalo, I mean, one of the things that I love about Rafalo, the many things, all the things. I mean, how long is she actually on screen? 
Did we actually look at that at all? I didn't. It's less than two minutes. She's on the screen for less than two minutes, and we learn so much about her. There is a very clear class status. We get this kind of sense of her response to Rose. Um, it's a moment that I really, really love Rose for, and that I love a lot of the companions in, in New Who, where they... I mean, I guess this is true for companions throughout the series of being able to step aside and say, I'm going to consider you as an, another being uh, who who is alive and therefore worthy of my respect. But there's something that's just so great about this character that is bright blue um, and yet also very quiet and then immediately uh, shown to be completely um, professional and good at her job and knowledgeable. Um, again, and she's a total Sam Seely character that's on the screen only for like a couple minutes. And those are the characters I love in Doctor Who. So, I mean, I, I don't know. What is there not to love about Rafalo? Uh, yeah. Shmeh. <laughs> Shmeh. Shmeh, see? Shmeh, see? That's Rafalo. <laughs> Jack, talk about Rafalo. Talk about uh, uh, how much you hate that character and wish she was not in the show at all. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I hate Rafalo. Oh, she's so bad. That scene, so to, I love that scene. Um, that's one of my favorite all-time scenes in the new series. Um, I love that Rafalo is kind of a reflection of Rose. You know, mm -hmm. she's the she's the the grease monkey round the back. You mm -hmm. know, which is exactly what Rose is at the start of Rose. Um, I, I love the the dynamic. Um, I love the way I love Rose's. I mean, Billy Billy Piper just plays this brilliantly. Um, mm -hmm. the, the actress playing Ruffalo is great as well, but Billy is fantastic. I love the sort of because Rose's automatic response to any kind of uh, you know officialdom is to think, oh, you know, should I be here? That she actually says, am I allowed to be here? You know, mm -hmm. for all her, she's very confident. She's a very confident person, but she's still who she is. You know, she's still come from that world where she, you know, people like Rose, they have to do that. Somebody comes, somebody official comes along, they have to say, oh, am I allowed to be here? You know, um, and her discomfort when she realizes that this this woman you know thinks of her as somebody high status you know somebody to be deferential to rose is sort of she's she looks kind of quietly horrified you know and then the thing about you have to give us permission to talk i love the way the actress i don't know the actress's name i love the way she plays that the, is uh, becky armory becky armory well she does a fantastic job just with that line you have to give us permission because she shows on her face and in her voice that she's aware of the irony of saying you have to give us permission to talk mm. um and then you know billy plays off it brilliantly because she then says you have permission and she does it in this way like you think she's squirming you know and she's she's kind of faintly you know sick having to say it and it just it just makes me completely fall in love with rose um at that moment um and then yeah it, it's it's a lovely exchange and rose is genuinely curious about her as a person and she's still trying to negotiate the fact that this person thinks of her as kind of you know she thinks of her as one of the guests one of the important people um whereas rose of course is 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 actually in terms of her background she's got much more in common with her fellow than she does anybody in the in the observation lounge you know exactly um, including the doctor including oh, yeah. the doctor yeah yeah um and i think and that I, maybe that's part Ruffalo's of why I like fate 
Ruffalo's fate is is you know it could have been roses if the doctor had you know not realised that this young woman was still in the stockroom you know she'd have, she'd have, she'd actually been blown up by the doctor's bomb you know she she'd have died one of the one of the background characters who gets caught in the crossfire like Ruffalo is you know mm-hmm. horribly a few minutes down the line and I think that that's why you end up loving Ruffalo so much is that's so immediately obvious that that's who she is yeah and the there's a deference that they show but as soon as Rafalo also sees that Rose is so uncomfortable giving her permission. Yes. Uh, she also gets to then have her own reaction of, of, of thanking her and just enjoying talking to Rose. Mm. And, you know, I'm a sucker for a moment of friendship between two women, um, yeah. whether or not uh, they look a, a thing alike and one of them has blue skin um, and yellow mm. eyes. Uh, and I also love that you get this very feminine, girly, and and when I say girly, I don't just mean girly as feminine. I mean like young girl, like you were saying, shop worker. Um, they just seem to have a lot in common moment. And when you see Rafalo go back to her work, she doesn't change. She's still very much the same character. So that when she sees the little, um, I mean, the I don't know what thing. to call it. The, C- the spider The CGI things. spider thing. The, the, the <laughs> spider bots. She's... One, I love the science fiction note that she just thinks it's an upgrade. She's like, if you're an upgrade, you just have to have to come register, uh, yeah. which I love that little note. But I also love that she is so friendly with them and treats them with her own kind of care um, before. And that's why she gets taken and killed so easily. There is so much shown about that character in that one scene, just between that interaction with Rose and the interaction with the spider bots. Um, the, and let, that's really good storytelling and writing and performance to me. Um, and, and that's why I love Doctor Who and, and I hate Moffat. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's important to have a character like Ruffalo in, in this setting because the conceit of the episode is the that we're amongst the sort of galactic great and the good, as the doctor says. He's what he said. What he means by that is the filthy rich, you know, on this kind of Agatha Christie Orient Express in space kind of thing. Um, so it's you need to to do a bit better than that, you know. You need to remember that wherever there are people like that, there's loads of people running around behind them cleaning up, you know. And I, and I, I mean, they're that... literally people of color. They're all blue. Yes, exactly. <laughs> All well, the people that serve them are all blue. And we literally meet two of them that have speaking roles, right? You know, it's mm-hmm. it's the steward, who doesn't even have a name, and then Rafalo. Yeah. Well, that yeah. one other one has a speaking role, but it's in a different language. Mm. But at least it remembers to, to show pass. us. Yeah, the little blue rover man. But at least it remembers to show us that those people are there and, you know, that they're yes. making the pipes work behind the scenes and that they have you know they have origins and they have feelings and they have thoughts and and uh, and also horribly you know because i want i want Rafalo to to join the team and and travel with the doctor and rose you know but mm-hmm. but horribly of course the world doesn't work like that the world is un it, the world is horribly unjust particularly for you know the people who get uh, caught in in the machinery you know it's, that's something that that it that it does it's, well, it's a it's a wonderful scene yeah to move on from Rafalo for a bit because i think jack made a good point of like people you want to go on the TARDIS. Um, I really wanted Tree Girl. Jade. <laughs> Jade. Oh god, yeah. Oh my god. To, to be honest, I would watch Rose, Jade, and Rafalo traveling through time and space, and we can just leave the Doctor on. You know, not Eggleston though. <laughs> he can like, tag along, but he can be. Fight you. Almost wouldn't fight you. He can be like you know there. He can be like Scooby to their you know Daphne, <laughs> Velma, and. 
He can just, he can just have a, a damn, hangdog. there's only two girls in that. Damn, damn. He can have a hangdog expression and then just, you know, kind of like make the joke at the end. The, uh, mm. the comic relief character. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I would watch the fuck out of that. No, Jade is an amazing character. Um, that is, uh, uh, <clears throat> I can't even read my own handwriting. It's Yasmin something. I apologize. Who, uh, is also in an episode of Red Dwarf. She's in Back in the Red Part 3. Which uh, eventually we're going to cover. Oh God, is that the same actress? It is the same actress. She's the uh, controller in the uh, garage in the back. Yeah, the, the cat dances. Yeah. For. I found that out just doing my cursory research today. Okay, I don't even remember <coughs> that red dwarf right now, so I'll have to. Yeah, that's fine. You shouldn't. <laughs> uh, we, You're blotting it out. <laughs> we don't. We don't need that one. We don't need to go there right now. But uh, she she is one of the one of the people who is in both Red Dwarf and uh, Doctor Who, and I thought it'd be worth uh, mentioning that. But uh. God, I love this character. Um, I Jade I is, also want. Sorry, go ahead. We get that really sexy introduction to them. Oh God! With, I, I mean, I want to watch Eccleston and Jabe flirt forever. I give you the <laughs> breath from my. Li- oh yeah, baby. How um, the line is how intimate. How intimate. there's only one way to say the words how into Christopher Eccleston, and it's the way she says it. <laughs> <laughs> And then she shows him her Liana. Right, yeah. And, I mean, there's yeah. there's this fascination, I think, both. I mean, and this is something, again, again, Jack, I hope you can speak to, is the you know, the element of romance coming into and sexuality coming into Doctor Who is something that, I mean, you know, something that was important to me kind of watching, um, again, as my kind of introduction to the show, and that this this Doctor is a, he is an overtly you know, sexual character. I mean, there there is flirtation happening, and it is not subtle in this episode. He's flirting both with Jade and, and Rose to some degree, although that becomes more obvious later on. Um, yeah. And that's something that so many of the old school fans just hate about, particularly the the Rose years, is is the, you know, oh my god, why is the Doctor, like... Why are they? Why why are they kissing? They're not even kissing. But, you know why is it? Yeah. It's like the little boy in the Princess Bride. You know, is this a kissing show? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I think with 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 some fans, you know, probably a, a fair amount of fans who, you know, are my age and you know <laughs> roughly roughly my sort of demographic, um, there is a kind of um, repressed nerd boy sort of icky um i fl- i flatter myself that that's not part of my problem <laughs> um, i i think some of the sort of I, I i'm irritated by some of the contrivances whereby the doctor ends up um you know st- like the, the the contrivance of of him snogging martha in her first episode, oh yeah i mean which, which the otherwise fact, the fact i really they, like you know the fact that they and, don't actually just go for it and and have that be a thing is is well i would much rather that yeah, you know, the, the fact that yeah. they keep trying to do it halfway, like. But know. my, uh, I, I was never particularly bothered by that sort of thing. To be honest, I could just kind of yeah. But the the thing that bothered me about it was that I, I felt at the time, and I still I still sort of feel this way. I modified my opinion a bit, but I felt that they were junking political engagement and and engagement with ideas and social issues and so on in favor of this um this greater obsession with things that are more to do with interpersonal relationships and interpersonal emotions you know and i found that uh, you know i think now actually watching series one series one is a very very political show um very um and and the new series generally has its has its deeply political moments i mean you know on it the ood um that's the, much more the Zygon the thing. invasion. Clearly, the, the greatest. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they there you see there you see the limits of that approach. Um, given you know the sort of people that are always going to be making this show, generally speaking. Um, yeah, but 
that you know planet of the ood is more the sort of thing i want from doctor who and if there's going to be if there's going to be a greater em- em- emphasis on emotion that's the sort of emotion i'm interested in i'm interested in political emotion mm-hmm. um much more than sort of you know martha fancies the doctor and he doesn't notice her you know i don't you know it's not it's not that it bothers me that it's in there i just don't really give a shit you know um so but the idea of the doctor flirting with jabe uh, you know I, that didn't bother me at the time i thought it was funny um and actually, you know, if you if you look at the classic series, certainly with some doctors, there are ways of reading them as, you know, I think you have to some of them. Yeah, like some of them are, are asexual or if I'm using that term wrongly, but, you know, sexuality is not part of their characters. Some of the doctors, I think, like the third doctor, you have to kind of strain and, you know, force yourself not to read him as a sexual end. You know, well, I was going to say I the the breath from my lungs, how intimate line feels very Tom Baker to me. Yeah. Um, yeah, there is a, I, I think for me, there is a very big difference between the doctor as a sexual entity or somebody who recognizes sexuality and a romantic character. And I think we start to get the doctor Eccleson's doctor is very sexual and sensual and flirty. Um, he's not quite as romantic. He definitely is moved by Rose but I always get his relationship with Rose to be more of a, like, you are inspiring this kind of hope in me because you're pretty dang cool. Yeah. Um, whereas... like I, I definitely do not read Nine and Rose as, as fucking. I, I don't read it that way at all. I don't and, think Eccleston's do, performance supports that. But if I don't they think do, they're fucking everyone together. Like, it's that level <laughs> of, like, there's not that kind of monogamous soul bond but there is this acknowledgement of sexuality and sensuality. He makes fun of her having boyfriends, um, but none of it is is too overt or judgmental in either way for it to feel like there's really a commitment made. Um, by the time they're getting to Rose and Ten, and and yeah, it, that is a very committed romantic plot line um and even if i like it which i do and can't help but like it and <laughs> sorry i shut up um did, did, did either of us I, say I don't like, I, I don't dislike it I, I just think rose's characterization kind of comes apart a bit in series two. Oh um, yeah, no but, i would agree with that but... the show kind of comes apart a bit in series two <laughs> well yes as i say love and monsters is the only episode of series two i like <laughs> Anyway, um, but part of the things that I, one of the things that I like about it is, um, I think that there's always been this kind of confidence about the doctor. Um, and that's what comes across in this kind of, it's not just that he's being flirty. It's that he's having witty banter, you know, Mm. not only is it a very pretty tree lady, um, she's kind of smart already and he's being kind of a jackass blowing on people and say i give you the gift from my lungs i'm spitting on you kind of uh and instead of taking that as what it is where later there's a character who literally does spit on him um she's just using it to be coy and flirty so i i think there's a lot in just this is a gift and this is how they're kind of responding to it um of the you know, these are the elite at play at a party. And uh, there is a way that they can respond to each other. um, But part of that has to be within the terms of like how the rich people play and chat. (laughs) There was a big coke fueled orgy afterwards uh, planned that we just didn't get to see because the uh, of the disaster that happened. You know, that's that's, oh, my God, Cassandra, (laughs) you know, she has all the orgies in a grove with an owl god. Um, 
No, I, I, I read the Ninth Doctor as somebody who's, you know, maybe there's some sort of there's this sort of man pain thing, you know, he's doing it to to escape the pain or hide the pain. But yeah. I think he's someone who's just he plays. He's he's a playful man, the Ninth Doctor, yeah. and he's playing with this. And it's not, it's I don't mean that he's not serious about it. I mean he's just wherever he is, you know, he thinks, ah, right, this is how things work here. Right, a new game, and then he plays it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's how I read that, and and I think he I think he really likes Jabe. Um, I think he likes the game of doing the the meeting and greeting of the guests and pretending to be one of them and stuff that's how i read it and i think chris mm-hmm. does it really well and he's got like to the, figure the, out the difference to figure out oh i have to give a gift okay uh, air for my lungs and suddenly cause yeah. like i can just pull this off because i'm the doctor and yeah that's but he does it so differently when he does it with jabe he does it in this very gentle sort of blowing he doesn't blow in her face or anything. He just pushes some air through very slightly parted lips in her direction, you know. And then when he does it to the adherence of the repeated meme, he does this great comedy thing where he breathes all over all of them. <laughs> so that's that's the Ninth Doctor to me. That's somebody who yeah. who just plays with everything. Maybe there's maybe he's doing it for sort of he's escaping or running away from something. He definitely is. He's he's you know anybody wants to talk to him about the past, he just instantly gets you know fuck off. Um, and he does that with Jay, of course. But um, he he's playing. He's a he's a playful creature, and whatever there is to play with, he'll play with it. And if there's sex, yeah, let's play with sex as well. You know, mm-hmm. which really works. I I prefer that much more to the sort of Matt Smith Matt Smith Doctor thing, where the the show is trying to engage with the kind of engage with that sort of stunted, um, you know, a bit childish lack of sexuality, fear of sexuality thing by sort of putting it onto the Doctor to sort of backhandedly and and heartedly make the Doctor somebody who doesn't understand human relationships so he'll you know pat clara's ass without realizing he's realizing he's done anything inappropriate and yeah. isn't that funny you know because because it's very it's very two-faced as well because he's supposed to have this deep and intense and moving relationship with river song and then the next minute he doesn't understand that that's inappropriate well fuck off that's you know you're cheating well you know, and the idea I, that, I, that I, river song is this like coded incredibly sexually aware character and the idea that she has any interest in the 11th doctor is just the yeah, fundamental thing that breaks sniggering that man child exactly. yeah yeah. R- river song and nine yeah i can totally see that river song and 11 <laughs> i mean that's that's practically an abusive relationship by its nature right <laughs> i mean she's just using the poor boy <laughs> what relationship under moffat isn't abusive let me just say that Oh, uh, didn't we say we weren't going to talk about this? But all right, you did it's it. Fine, it's my fault. I brought up sex, which just brings up the eleventh Doctor because he's that mesmerizing sexual beast. Yes. <laughs> so gross. Let's come back and talk about End of the World again. And uh, you mentioned oh, Cassandra, so let's talk about uh, Cassandra, Zoe Wanamaker. Yeah, the sh- the new show's first big name, apart from the the leads, obviously. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, I think because Zoe Wanamaker is quite well known in this country. She's been in some, she's a Shakespearean actress, you know, but she's been in some, you know, very popular TV shows, particularly in the 90s. Um, she was in a, a show, I think it was called Love Hurts, which was kind of a long running comedy romantic drama that was very big at one point. So she's quite a well known actress. You know, she's got, she's very distinctive as well. So people recognize that voice. That's true. Um, she is very distinctive. I've seen her in lots of things. I didn't realize that she was kind of the name. Though. Yeah. Well, she was playing um, a regular. She was playing the regular role of. No, sorry, that was after that. She started playing the regular role of sort of a, a sidekick to Hercule Poirot in the in the David Suchet Poirots that that were huge in this country. Mm-hmm. That was after this, but that gives you an idea of the the profile. She. Mm-hmm. 
Oh God, Cassandra! I mean, Jesus! What a what a can of worms! Can, can I just um, say I love how racist she is? Like that's the first thing I think of when I Cassandra. Yeah, racist, rich bitch. She's kind of like every problem and every great thing there is about Russell T Davies politics, kind of encapsulated in this seed right at the start yep. of the series. Well, you know? and I will say though, like the first time I saw her, I was like, "Oh, somebody watched Brazil." <laughs> yeah, the word Brazil is in my notes. Yes, <laughs> the word Brazil is in my notes as well. <laughs> I literally have. Okay, I this is this is what I wrote. Um, although. This is this is understating it. Hints of Brazil and plastics. That's my note about Cassandra. Hints? Exactly. It should not be hints. It should be like completely fucking obvious. Um, yeah, not even homage. So, yeah. Just doing it again. Just going. Hey, I saw Brazil. Yeah. Have you seen Brazil? That's what. Yeah. That's what Lady Cassandra is. Brazil, Brazil over here, everybody. They should um, practically play the theme yeah. song instead of tainted love. Brazil. Yeah, I mean, one thing that's improved immediately from the first episode is Murray Gold's music. I love that sort of fairground thing he's got going on in mm. this. It's very catchy, very appropriate. Um, yeah, but Cassandra, my God. I mean, she. Okay, right. So she's a millionaire. She's incredibly rich. She's doing it for money. She's doing it as a as a scam, you know, with with share prices and stuff mm-hmm. like that, and insurance. You know, it, it's it's all about money. It's all about greed. It's all about capitalism. I love that. Although the idea that you know. It's it's the year five billion, and we've still got capitalism. You know, it's that old quote. You know, people find it easier to envisage the end of the world. Literally, this is the quote from Frederick Jameson. People find it easier to imagine the end of the world than to imagine the end of capitalism. So, you know, all these years in the future, we're still in this fucking system. But you know, that that's something. Um, she's 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 a millionaire. She's she's the rich. The rich are evil. That's great. Um, she's a racist. She's a you know racial purist. I love that. That's great. Um, you know, and yet at the same time, there's this very worrying. I mean, first of all, let's just say she's the show's first explicitly transgender character. If you don't count Eldred, um, she she has that line about mm-hmm. when I was a little boy. Mm-hmm. That's that's a shame, isn't it? That that should be Cassandra. Um, and well, and it's I, a throwaway really, thing too. I mean, it's basically it's a, a joke. throwaway. Thing it's it's a joke. It's it's a joke. It's a bit of a callous one, you know. Uh-huh. I'm afraid. Um, it is just a joke and it is a throwaway thing, but it's still an unfortunate thing that kind of, you know, every time it's, I, I see it, I kind of go, Ugh. Um, uh-huh. and I, I don't, I can't really get behind the whole sort of quite elitist satire thing that's inherent in this sniping at people with plastic surgery. You know, I, I know what he's going for. He's very much going for the Brazil thing, the kind of, you know, the disgusting rich spending all their money on, you know, their appearance, you know, vanity, the vanity of the wealthy, the, the vanity of the privileged and so on. I, I can't quite get behind that. You know, there's, there's, there's some body shaming in there. You know, uh, I, it's a bit because there's, there's even a bit where Rose refers to her as Michael Jackson, you know, and, yeah. you know. Michael Jackson's a very troublesome figure in all sorts of ways, but the idea that the show is, you know, it, I feel like Russell T. Davies is kind of, he's under the impression he's having a go at the, the disgusting, vain, idle rich, whereas actually he's, he's having a go at a group of people without realizing it. He's having a go at a group of people, well, maybe some of them anyway, a bit more vulnerable. Yes, and I agree with you. It's just so much worse later on. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't think he does any of it on purpose, no. which isn't to say that it's okay. Um, it's not as malicious as I think uh, it could be. I like the idea that there is a character that is so, so wanting to say that they are the last of their kind, but they don't even resemble it because what being the last of their kind means to them is such a narrow, narrow 
definition, right? Like Cassandra yeah. wants to be the last human, but you know, we would not consider her human because she's a, a sheet of skin stretched well, out. I would consider her human. Okay. On looking at her, she does not look what we would consider human. She is certainly not an unaltered human in the sense that there she's, you go. she's yes. like, you know, all these proto-humans and she's... meta-humans and, you know, post-human. It's like, mm-hmm. what the fuck do you think you are? You know? And exactly. even she's and, genetic. She's genetically human. Yeah. And even, and even, uh, well, I mean, even in terms of personality, I mean, I think that one thing that um, Dr. Who comes back to is that humanity is always going to be venal and, and stupid and silly. And that's definitely one of those kind of recurring themes of, of series one. I mean, you know, when, when yeah. Eccleston, which is I love it when Eccleston calls humans idea in itself. personally, I think it's, I, I think it's amazing because he's, the whole thing is you have so much more potential than this and yet you're stuck in, you know, you're stuck doing plastic surgery to yourself and, um, you know, partying this way and, and doing, and, and completely ignoring broader context of things and i don't i mean absolutely i think the yeah. show is kind of um kind of treating plastic surgery as just frippery that rich people do and like why do you care about your parents and yet you know it's starring one of the biggest pop stars in the country at the time so you know um and it i mean god it's such a i mean it's it's problematic because like ultimately you're 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 doing this as a television show and like if you're criticizing people for caring about their appearance and engaging in plastic surgery, that's so many of the people making the show. And it's, it's, uh, yeah. So yeah, that gets complicated and, and, and misogynistic. Cassandra, at that, you know? Cassandra is somebody who's suffering from some kind of, you know, body dysphoria, body dysmorphia, yeah, whatever yeah. the no, word it's, is. Mm-hmm. You could, I mean, I, you can read it that way. I know that's not intended. I, I, I kind of, I know that's not intended, but I kind of imagine that like I salvage it slightly by, kind of imagining that because she is the last human and and she's that that this is just what body standards and beauty standards of the like ultra rich last humans natural humans are that essentially you have a whole society of flat people being cared for by moisturizing technicians you know <laughs> um and so she's she's kind of obeying those set of beauty standards more so than um something that something that feels more dysphoric um yeah sure um, I mean, it's certainly a valid reading. I'm not. I'm not. I, I guess for me, it's like I always read. It's I'm not. Like, I'm not saying. In this. I'm not saying that's what Cassandra is, or that's what Cassandra means. I'm just saying it's. It's very unfortunately open to those sorts of interpretations. Well, it's, it's that metaphoric drift. And any time that you have, you know, one character who represents a whole sheaf of <clears throat> like characteristics, um, then you can yeah. run into that. And I think that. Well, just... but she's not that character when she comes back at all, right? I mean, at least when we see her again. We get a flashback to her when she is the more typically p- corporeal, shall we say? Yeah, I mean, we get get and her in, in a sort of in, in the you know, looking three dimensional, <laughs> being less flat. The trouble with the trouble with that episode is that Cassandra's whole psychology just stops making any sense whatsoever. I wish they had not brought the... her back. It's, I mean, yeah. the actress is great. I understand why they did it. It's a, I kind of like New Earth. I think it's a fun but silly piece of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's deeply stupid, but I just kind of love the. I just kind of love it. the only. The only good thing about New Earth is that it leads to gridlock. Um, <laughs> New Earth is such a fucking mess. I mean, but yeah, it, it completely. I mean, the whole her whole thing is this flatness fetish, and then she takes over Rose's body, and she's literally oh, nice rear bumper. Well, I thought you wanted to be flat. You know? <laughs> yeah, her character doesn't make any sense in long term. No. Um, and then we get the sympathetic end for somebody who's a mass murdering psychopath. <laughs> what? 
it's oh, it's, Jack. it's Hitler petting the kitten, you know, once again. Yeah. It's it's Russell Russell T Davies is a deeply political writer, but he is not a particularly consistent political thinker. Let's put it that way. <laughs> well, and well, and he clearly has issues with middle-aged women. I mean, you know, there there is this yeah. I mean, one of the big things that was kind of pointed out to me that I never noticed until it was pointed out to me and then now I can't unsee it is as 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 big a fan as I am of the uh Russell G Davies era of the show and his writing in general, he has a problem with like mothers and and people who are of that sort of yeah. general age and i'm i can imagine being a a young gay man kind of growing up in in that time and place that yeah i mean he's a kind of a stereotype of gay male culture and his mommy issues right yeah exactly so and some some of his greatest writing has been him sort of facing that and negotiating those mm-hmm. those things um but yeah it doesn't always i mean it doesn't always come, quite work for him. yeah particularly in doctor who where he can't he can't actually tackle those issues directly. Exactly. Um, so yeah, you know, you can't I, do in, I, I, in Doctor Who what you do in Queer as Folk, right? I guess the one, yeah. um, the one kind of defense of kind of having Lady Cassandra as being this kind of hugely problematic, you know, mess of characteristics is at least we do have the other two really amazing female characters in it. So it's not, you know, we're looking at oh, our one female lead who isn't Rose in this is like this mess and a mess of a character and i think Mm. Lady cassandra in terms of her um i mean obviously the performance is amazing but i think the uh the idea that she's the uh capitalist figure who's you know oh i engineered all this just so i can um drive up my stock price you know sort of yeah and and just this is all about this is all about making money for me that's something that's going to go come back again and again in uh series one um as well the the trouble with so many of these sort of anti-capitalist metaphors in 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 science fiction uh, and and fantasy generally is that they so often slide into meaning something else you know, like, I mean, <laughs> a lot of them, you know, a, a lot like the Ferengi, you know, the Ferengi are obviously supposed to be this big jab at capitalism. Um, they they're, they're space Jews. They're space Jews. They're, they're anti-Semitic. Yeah. <laughs> and oh, fuck, you know, um, mm-hmm. the, the fucking goblins in Harry Potter. Jesus. I mean, <laughs> yikes. It's not that bad. It's not that bad. But Cassandra is an example of that sort of thing. It's the sort of, I'm going to have a go at capitalism by portraying it as something nasty. And then the something you, nasty you portray it as starts to look a bit like a Nazi poster. <laughs> and then, of course, coming back to End of the World, our one uh, person of color who has you know lots of lines in this is the one who dies to, uh, to yep. save our, our, our lead. So... Uh, you know, there there is. That. I feel like we're being we're being very. I feel like I've taken the lead actually in being quite uncharitable to an episode that's really very good. Oh no, I love uh, this episode. I mean, I I think I think I I almost feel like I have to bend over backwards to say the negative things, um, and yeah. just just to kind of get mm-hmm. it out of the way uh, because otherwise, I I I mean, I do love this episode. And I love I actually love both of these episodes. I mean, even I was gonna say, you know, Rose and if I'm sitting down to just kind of treat Doctor Who as as a warm blanket. I'm putting on the Eccleston year. Um, and even, even the unquiet, even the unquiet dead. I will, I still, I still have fondness for that. Despite there are moments in that I really like, despite, you know, deep, deep problems. With it. But, um, I will, I will just sit and rewatch this. So I think that these two episodes are probably the ones I've rewatched the most. Um, just because they are, you know, I will just sit and put them on and then watch until I fall asleep. Start at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I love Into the World. Such a uh, amazing politically. Uh, it's it's um, it's very incisive. It's very willing to go there and just say, yeah, the rich, you know, 
Come on, of course. Bunch of assholes. It's a bunch of assholes. Of course, that's that's who they are. It's very willing to do that. It's very willing to kind of call the doctor out on his shit. Um, mm-hmm. I love the scene where uh, Rose confronts him and is like, you know, um, right before he gives her the he he does the jiggery pokery with the phone. There's this real oh the phone that is. Let's talk about yeah. the phone, Jack. Talk about the phone. The, the The phone is one of the absolute masterstrokes of the first series, mm-hmm. possibly of the, of the new series overall. That is so great, you know. And I remember even even at the time, sort of feeling kind of resentful, you know, because that's sort of that's something that the, the classic series it that never did anything like that, you know. And it's so it's such a glaring omission. You know, and it, again, the sort of implicit, you know, critique of the classic series there. Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do something like this? So it's sort of an, as an old school fan, very defensive and protective and overinvested. You know, there's a bit of me going, oh, well, but and if my the classic God, series, so if the classic series had done so this, bloody. the classic series had done this, then we wouldn't have had to have the awakening. So, you know, extra bonus there. Yeah. Which one's the awakening? You haven't seen it. It's fine. <laughs> Okay, I'll cut that bit. Michael, out. I'm sorry. <laughs> we uh, that's that's fine. I mean, who who'd who'd want to lose the awakening? <laughs> <sighs> so talk about the phone, Jack. Well, that's that's it, really. I mean, just I mean, it's so it's, great. I, it's I so love, fantastic. It goes and it goes right back to what I love so much about these two, and I I keep coming back to this is that it is you're in the middle of the situation where the world is about to. You're literally watching a supernova happen Mm -hmm. a supernova that's being held back by you know human technology you are five billion years into the future and then you can talk to your mom and Mm -hmm. uh connecting back that like even though there is this cosmic perspective it connects us right back to the here and the now and and the sort of the real and the material world um and again that's something we keep coming back to again and again in this first series um and in particular these two and i think that that's why i mean i really do i if we were if we were saying I would say Rose and Into the World is a two parter. Like for me this feels very much yeah. like a a very connected adventure. And then of course <laughs> the Unquiet Dead. You could really kind of make it a three parter because you follow right back from there. But No, uh, the, the Unquiet Dead just <laughs> That's fair. What I love about the uh one one thing just going back to Rafalo, uh just uh, for a moment. We do this again in the Unquiet Dead and mm-hmm. have a, a working class character um that Rose uh, bonds with. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just turns out that Mark Gatiss is not nearly the writer that Russell T Davies is, <laughs> despite ha- really... despite having Eve Miles, who is amazing. Yeah, mm-hmm. and she's she's probably the best thing in it, the character and the actress. Yeah, um, yeah. her big really, eyes. Uh, yeah, at, at this point, you know, if you're if if this is the second time you've had a working class female character that Rose has bonded with backstage, you know, and this is the second time in in as many episodes that she's dying at the end. Yeah. Or at some point in the episode, you know, maybe rethink that one. You know, <laughs> yeah, no, agreed. I mean, it is, it is a uh, too little. T- it's, it's, yeah, no, it's, it's usually problematic just in context. But yeah, into the world. Um, <laughs> I mean, I just, I just love it. Even the, even the, like the, uh, the, the sun shield of falling and then rising and then falling and then rising. Oh, you know, like, uh, yeah, that's that good. Stuff, yeah, it, it just sort of, it just sort of works in context. I think that. Rewatching it, I, I, I do kind of go. Can't we? Can't we do something else with this show other than just watch the uh, the CGI light uh, burn the wall? But um, particularly the first time I watched it, I mean, it, it's hard to say edge of my seat kind of entertainment, but it it really is like compelling. Um, it's it's much better. I mean, this is where the direction comes in because that scene is is kind of nail biting, you know, because it's just much better directed than equivalent peril scenes in in Rose. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Although I will say the scene with the doctor, you know, going through the fans, you know, that's that slows. There's a weird pacing thing there where it just slows right down, and I'm like, get a fucking wiggle on. Jabe's about to go in fire. You know? <laughs> yeah. Can't you? Can't you? Um, you know, if you had run, if you'd watched a little bit faster, Doctor, she would not have had to die. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And then, and then, like he wait. If he got a little bit faster, then he would. God, she dies, and then he goes to the last fan. Like, yeah. why? Why did you could have just run and then anytime you have a uh there are these like magic fans this this sort of like platforming video game thing that you have to do is always yeah. um, kind of silly unless you do something um more interesting than this where it literally is just a plot contrivance so i mean again there are problems and and they're almost all plot based it's not character it's not theme it's not concept it's all just sort of the standard like yeah it's the running through corridor stuff that just doesn't quite really it should the, the- the biggest problem here is that I I want this to be a two part. I want the end of the world to be a two parter. You know, I want this to be an hour and a half. I want the, I want this to be I want this to be Russell T Davies writing this in you know for for the the Seventh Doctor and Ace in nineteen eighty nine as a four parter. You know, because I want that much of it, except with this budget. You know, <laughs> <laughs> right with the uh, with the uh, prosthetics budget that he had. Yes, yeah, because you know? yeah. yeah. it's all over so soon. I I keep think listening to you talk about like the pacing bothering you. Um, but I, I like those moments that, that Eccleston gets where for some reason it's like Eccleston has a superpower where everything has to slow down around him for a little bit. Um, oh yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. And because it happens throughout Eccleston's run that he gets these little like slow and focus on me. I'm going to have a little internal timey-wimey moment before we move on. Well, they play with but that I in think, Rose where he can like read yeah. really fast and you know, um and I also think that we get a little bit more um, of that background with him. Uh, I wanted to talk about the leading up part with him and, and Jade or Jabe when they're first going through that back corridor and kind of doing the flirty questioning each other. The mutual investiga- investigation, working together, uh, camaraderie of, of it that he has with her. I, I think... The idea that any tertiary character, any of these side characters you believe could instantly become um, a companion. They are, he's always considering people and respecting them and thinking, you know, oh, is this somebody who I might want to see again um, in this weird kind of journey way? So that when you see really that people are already sacrificing themselves for him. In this episode, even though they make much more of an episode, you know, it's not an issue of it until 10 really starts going. Um, what I started focusing on as it was leading up to it is this idea that the doctor, when he sees Jabe making the choice to die, essentially, because he tells her, like, dude, you're going to burn. And she's like, yeah, I know. And he smiles. And the idea that, like, okay, yeah, if we're jumping from the frying pan into the fire, at least we're going together – the idea that like the doctor might think he could possibly die, even though we all know that he will never die. Uh, I like that idea. There's a little bit of Eccleston's doctor that has a sense of mortality to him, I guess, is what I'm thinking. Um, and that leads and up the, into, again, parting of the ways where like he's, yeah. he's deliberately planned. He, he decides to die in that and then just gets saved by the um, not the god out of the machine. Because, you know, I've mentioned that a couple of times. <laughs> the literal battle <laughs> of the machine. In that case, you know? um, uh, 
but so that we get in this moment, I mean, the, the moment of this episode for me is, is not just the fact that he gives Rose a phone where she can call the past, but that's his kind of response to her being like, everyone I know is dead right now. He's yeah. like, yes, but here's this cell phone that you can call to the past. And mm. she's just like, yeah, but that's not normal. This is the planet that, you know, all these people and everything that I know of is from and it's about to blow up before me. And he can't even hold that with a sense of levity and humor, but he's still choosing to bring Rose to that. I don't know. There's a lot of um, big morality questions that I think get really opened here that we see throughout a lot of my favorite episodes with him. Uh, I I always think of um, Dalek and the idea that what really attracts him to Rose is her connection to life. He is so disconnected from that all that is living around him, what he gets attracted to is what makes him live in the moment and and um, be inspired to want to stay and fix things. Because there's something about Eccleston that doesn't quite care. He's a little he's a little bit out of fucks. He doesn't have any fucks, but he kind of would like to give a fuck again. He he's explicitly you know he, he says to Jabe, doesn't he, in this episode? You know he says, "Is there anybody coming to help or something?" And she says, "No, we're we're in you know we're." We're just in this on our own. And he says, that's fantastic, you know. Mm-hmm. And she actually says, why is that fantastic? Well, it's because he's, yeah, he's a thrill seeker to the point of being a little bit, you know, a little bit careless of whether he lives or dies. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, again, the whole series is kind of about through his friendship, relationship, whatever, with Rose. Uh, he, he, get, he gets grounded. He gets, he gets reconnected to that again. And, uh, I mean, through the promise he gives to Jackie. You know, yes, I will keep her safe. You know, and that becomes a real thing in uh, the World War Three um, two-parter, Aliens Alone mm-hmm. two-parter, I should say. Sorry, we keep referencing I... things that are going to happen because <laughs> you really can't talk well, about how... the the overall. How can plot, you not? You know? yeah. mm-hmm. How can you not? And I love the Doctor as you know, he's 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 a bundle of different impulses. You know, he's he's um, he doesn't want to talk about you know who he is and where he comes from or the war or anything with Jay, but yet he obviously does. He appreciates her. Her words of comfort. I mean, those are the first. That's the first time we see the Doctor cry. Those are the first Doctor tears we ever see. Mm. Um, incidentally, um, he he obviously wants this connection with Rose, and yet every time in these initial episodes they start to make a connection, he gets all defensive and starts making stupid jokes or gets angry. You know, it's 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 really it's 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 a very it's a very good portrayal of somebody who's who's in a really weird place psychologically. You know, because this Doctor is right off the the time war. You know, so it's post-traumatic stress disorder and survivor guilt and all that stuff and it's without being heavy about it it's 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 very good and it's i love the way it falls into place the more you watch as well um and i love the phone he's 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 telling her that it's all happening at once you know it's uh from their point of view the point of view they now have as 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 her traveling with him it's all mm. happening at but again, it's that grounding. It's it's about you know reconnecting her to where she comes from, and then grounding himself via her as well. That's that's great stuff. It's interesting how well it's achieved here with a phone call and uh, this sort of uh, very material context. It's very uh, because even in even in the second episode, we kind of know Jackie and Mickey, and we kind of know the world that she comes from. And then uh, again later on in Hyde they kind of do a much more kind of high-end special effects version of the same concept and spend a lot more time on it or a lot more sort of, um, you know, dramatic heft energy on it. And uh, it, it always feels a much flatter to me than just a simple phone call to mom. And I love that Jackie just picks up the phone and she's doing laundry. 
And she thinks it's just like, oh, what have I, what have I done again? You never call me during the day unless I've done something wrong. <laughs> oh no, mom, I just he, want to hear your voice. Great, he's got a great yeah. ear for the way ordinary, you know, people ordinarily talk to each other. You know, it, it's yeah. very, it's very real. And uh, you got to give Camille Kadori some credit for for really. I mean, is is again, it's the mother character, and who's you know, we know Russell T Davies has problems with his mom, <laughs> pretty obviously. Um, but it is, uh, you've really got to give her credit for uh, grounding that character and, and making what could have been just a set of shrill stereotypes into something that's that's much more um, three-dimensional than she had to be. Um, and some of that is because we, we see her later on. I mean, I think she, maybe she is a little bit um, two-dimensional here. But I don't know, even then, I, 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 I always kind of liked her even when I was supposed to laugh at her. Yeah, well, and I do feel that there is a bit of foreshadowing of Father's Day and the idea of, well, here's a cell phone that you can call your mother. And, you know, I react very strongly to that um, for the same reasons I don't like to watch Father's Day. If somebody tells me everyone's dead a billion years ago, well, no, Colin, this is all happening at the same time. There's a bit of the reaction that it's like, well, what else you mean everything's happening at the same time this is this isn't just me calling back to my mom from my present when i'm so far in the future that that means that my past is is my present and um what does he call it culture shock <laughs> he kind of in the first step uh, in uh, rose i think it is he refers to it it's like oh no that's of course you're going to be a little like overwhelmed it's culture shock but it's it's much more than that when it's time shock, right? The the idea of losing someone is so completely different with that one phone call and and the cell phone. Well, and again, it's about confronting that possibility of mm. you know we are bound in our sort of you know lives and time moves in one direction, and really confronting that idea of like, well, if you do have a time machine, you can do this, and why not? And <laughs> time travel stories always have a. Uh, a trick in trying to challenge that question of why not because the reason why not is because that's not the story we're telling we're supposed to go off and have goofy adventures with this eccentric scientist guy <laughs> you know and not like let's go meet our dead father you know but mm-hmm. uh, but like the, the whole the whole point of this trip from the doctors there's a funny way actually when you when you when you look back on it like the opening scene where he's where he's ostensibly asking her where she wants to go it's a bit manipulative because mm-hmm. he's kind of daring her to, um, you know, push further, um, and then he's he's saying, "Oh no, you know, he's not he's not really being honest. He's saying, oh, that's boring. Let's go on a bit further.' He's taking her there specifically because he wants her to see her planet block, you yeah. know, because he wants her to know how that feels. Because he wants to make that connection. He wants to tell her. He wants to tell her that he's seen his own planet destroyed. You know, the the last scene in the episode is where he's been trying to get to the whole time. Whether he's conscious of that or not, he he's trying to make that connection. And again, I was talking about the the bundle of you know conflicting impulses. She asks him, "Who are you? What are you running from?" He just gets angry and avoids the question. And yet, the whole reason they're there is because he wants to tell her. Yeah, you know? that's right. Yeah, speaking of the Doctor Rose relationship, it's uh, telling that the two episodes or the two songs that were uh, tainted love. And toxic <laughs> right? You know, and you look at those lyrics. I was li- reading the lyrics this afternoon, and going like, "Wow, well, that's not on the nose." <laughs> I'm addicted to See, you. That's the you sort know of that thing I'm toxic. I... Yeah, well, yeah, no, I get it. Yeah, that's the sort of thing I hated when I saw this the first time around. Like Britney Spears in Doctor Who, you know, get out the crucifix. Um, I've become, <laughs> I hope, a little bit less of a snob since then. <laughs> I actually think it's 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 quite funny. I love the whole riff with the the Wurlitzer and she thinks it's called an iPod. I love the idea that things get lost in history and Oh and yeah. 
details become morphed and changed because that's so true that's so true like nobody from like um i'm trying to think of an era that the shows well like um you know the the ishilda story from the last season you know nobody who is actually one of those people from that period of time would look at that and recognize anything about their culture you know because our entire view of of the past is completely just a series of representation you know the the, uh, the history is literally just stuff we tell ourselves about the past so i love that i love that acknowledgement that you know, people in the future will think that uh you know, an iPod was a Wurlitzer and classical music was Britney Spears. <laughs> well, then, I mean, you're, you're 5 billion years into the future. What's 200 years or 300 years difference yeah. in, the, in, the, yeah. in the scale of things? You know, uh, Brahms yeah. might as well be Britney you know, as far as that. You know, well, if you, it's if all you look at any book old and, and classic. If you look at any book that purports to be the history of the world, right, the, the first 19 centuries and everything before that as well going back to the creation of the planet that's always contained in like the first fifth of the book and the rest of it's the 20th century <laughs> you know mm-hmm. it's a well like that classic new yorker cover you know the world is viewed from new york city yeah or the wonderful thing terry eagleton said about the the, the new atheists which is the universe as viewed from north oxford um <laughs> there's there's a little bit of that in this actually where the the little opening jab where they say you're not allowed to use weapons or teleporters or religion you know that that is so 2005 <laughs> yeah <laughs> davies gets better on that subject i mean gridlock you know for instance but yeah <laughs> I mean, I just kind of see that as like, okay, this is sort of a totalitarian state. I mean, it is, it is, we are presented as this sort of utopian future, but of course it isn't because capitalism still exists and, you know, there are rich people oppressing uh, the uh, working class and uh, religion has been banned. So, I mean, this is... This yeah, is, well, those those two things don't... Again, you know, Russell T. Davies, very political, not a great actual, you know, theorist because you know, those two things don't go together. No, no, not at all. Another political thing I love in this is the jab at the National Trust, because I have I have big issues with the National Trust, and I love the idea that the National Trust have now taken over the entire planet, and they've restored it to its classic version, because that is so fucking barbed. You know, the National Trust, they take, you know, the ultimate expression of sort of heritage Britain, and they buy old, um, well, I don't know if they buy them, but they 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 restore old buildings and old properties to, you know, like this completely fake you know, tourist attraction, heritage Britain sort of version of what they think they they should be like instead of letting the past catch up with um, great buildings and, and let the past show in them. So the idea that they've taken out they've taken over the entire earth and restored it to what they think of as the classic configuration of the continent. <laughs> you mean like so... plantation homes that are all fancy and restored, but somehow there are no slave quarters next to them? Yes, exactly. That sort of sanitized view of heritage. Yeah. History. I imagine. Yeah, yeah. I imagine if we went down to the surface, then we'd find like an entire you know like Disneyland of, of <laughs> you know this is yeah. what Earth was in in two thousand five or whatever year they're trying to replicate. You know so. You you like a completely gleaming New York City, you know, complete with uh, you know, very like fake urine stains, <laughs> you know, like everything that you would imagine you believe about uh, yeah. you know, the earth of that era. And but every really... pedestrian oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Every pedestrian would be, you know, Gene Kelly swinging on a lamppost. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Oh yes. Uh, uh, and then we would have a like just non ending scrolling gif loop of Eccleston doing his little dance with his head swinging in a circle oh yeah eccleston dance <laughs> it's yeah i like to think i'm it's that cool when I do, but i'm not you tend to sweep me right off my feet oh into the ground like 
that's that's his way. Anyway, um, I I I love this episode so much, and I realize that there's a lot of it is just purely um, th- there is just something really enjoyable about watching this episode. Um, I, I really like the way it looks. I like all the characters. I like all the colors. I, I think for some reason I, I just am realizing how much one of the reasons I really like Rafalo is we get this character that is relatively humanoid, but she's very bright blue. We have a couple of bright blue characters. We have the face of Bo introduced, which whether or not they knew he was going to be Jack, whatever. Um <laughs> And the idea that trees are now also people or somehow connected. Um, lots of, lots of species things. evolved from that planet. I mean, it's five yeah. billion years, which is, I mean, you know, un- yeah. unimaginable well, vastness of time. J- Jabe is one of the mongrels that Cassandra hates, isn't she? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, you know, maybe little blue dude on his scooter. Maybe everybody who's humanoid is somehow connected. I, I mean, I like that there's a lot hinted at that they don't go into. Also, it does make, I think sometimes um, in New Who Now, things get over-explained. I, I like having a sense of a civilization that is vast, that they're just kind of coming into and, and um, touching on a big cross-section of. Well, it doesn't yeah. matter what the mocks of Balhoon. It just exactly. know, the whole point is it's it's a kind of a goofy little character guy that like it's it's an excuse to show off the effects budget and to and to yeah. just show us that and to give us this alien perspective and to show us what the show is capable of. And to just kind it's of I mean series. and the whole point is if you're Rose kind of walking around in this you don't know what the fuck it is, you know. Yeah. And sitting and yeah. explaining all this would I mean it would just you know, there's no point to it, you know. The, the end of the world really is the first series only real strong moment of yeah this is what it's like viewers you know deal with it I think yeah because the first series is very trepidatious a lot of the time about alienating people um, and and uh, end of the even the end of the world you know there's next to no continuity in it there's really only the mention of the fact that he's a time lord which mm. is something everybody knows already because it's you know it's part of the it's it's one of the things that everybody does know even the people who've never seen it you know so it's not it doesn't even really count as continuity um but yeah i i like the way it just says you know this is i mean they did that deliberately as well i mean russell t davies has said we we, we made into the world to be this is as weird as it can get you know if if you don't like this then don't bother you know <laughs> I wish we got more of that. Does. I mean, we don't get enough yeah, weirdness we in don't. Doctor Who. I mean, and, and and even even in series one, there's you know they don't they do a bit of this. I mean, it's not like it, this is uh, completely absent, but you never really you never really get like the Star Wars cantina, you know, sort of. Concept, yeah. You know? yeah. Um, it looks very. It, I, I think it looks gorgeous. I love the way it looks. I think it holds up. But it looks. I mean, I remember at the time it looked amazing. You know, is this Doctor Who? I don't believe it. But it looks incredibly cheap and sparse now compared to later things the show has done. Um, and I'm not. In many ways, that makes me like it more. You know, it makes it, it makes it feel more like the classic series in some ways. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> I there is a sense of which. Okay, we've got this. We've got these prosthetics, and what we're going to do is we're going to just have them all walk through a very sparse doorway and like show you all these things yeah just to prove that yeah. we can do it whereas you know in the more... it's all overlit right it's all it's all completely overlit and yeah you're right it does I, 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 and that's what i love about um again going back to rose is you know i always recommend rose is the first one people should watch um because it's kind of silly and you've got to be okay with that in order to like accept that this is what doctor who is to some degree 
Um, because if you if you can't accept the silliness, you're not going to get far in watching Doctor Who. And I think that that's that's sort of the same way. I just don't think the silly is very well done in Rose. You know, like the bin scene. I don't have an inherent objection to the bin scene. I just think it's badly done. And that's it's a number of things in Rose that are just mishandled. You know. Sure, sure. I mean, I'm not. I'm not even saying it's. Um it's well handled i'm saying you're gonna have to get used to that if you're a doctor who fan well that's true actually isn't it you're gonna have to get used to things being good ideas but badly done because that's very much about doctor who thankfully that all ended uh you know like three episodes later everything just so you know no no that was that was when that was when moffat and matt smith came along yeah no and then suddenly everything was perfect yeah <laughs> um do we have uh, further thoughts about into the world i feel like we're just kind of uh i'm fine with rambling and chatting but i feel like the audience might let us go here pretty soon <laughs> we, we've completed my notes which were, were just slightly sparse but i think the problem with into the world is it's so manifestly good and so manifestly uh, what it is. I mean, the stuff that it does well, it, it's pretty, I mean, it's kind of on the surface, although we've, we've kind of delved into some of it, but it's very on the surface. It tells you what it's about. You know, you, there's a, you don't really need to analyze. There's it. There's just not much that we need to uh, elucidate here. So, uh, I mean, even though it's strangely, it's strangely forgotten, isn't it? I mean, yeah. it, it, the series, I mean, these opening episodes, they worked, they did what they were for in that they launched the series and the series is still here. And it's almost as big as it ever was. Uh, I think it's it's absolute high point was sort of late tenant, wasn't it? But it's, it's still it's still the biggest thing on TV, um, as good as in Britain. Um, but in itself, the end of the world has kind of sunk without a stone. It's made very little, in, it, you know, impression on public consciousness. You know, you, you never. I mean, people don't. People talk about, you know, are you my mummy? Every now and mm. again, even today, that nobody talks about the mocks of Balhoon these days. Um, well, and it's funny because we do get the introduction of like two characters that come back later at least yeah with cassandra and face of bow but again i think part of the reason that i like it is it it does so much of that foundational work for what new who was going to look like and the kind of morality behind new who um these were the kinds of characters that we were going to be meeting in in eccleston's outer space you know what i mean I don't know how much they follow through on that. I I think they do a, a lot of the time. Clearly, I like the show. Uh, <laughs> but I, I mean, there is a bit of, man, did I ever want to see more characters like Jabe and Rafalo. And, and we do get some. Uh, like, we were talking about Gwen Miles in the next episode. Um, but there, I don't know. There's something special about those characters to me. Again, this is my first doctor who episode though so i i um i make it a little bit more important to me than than rose in some way so i think rose kind of just builds up into this episode for me but this is the important episode mm. well i think well you know what it's like it's like the reboss operation because the reboss operation is absolutely one of the greatest classic stories and i know it's your personal favorite daniel but you know as far as the public at large is concerned and to be honest most of fandom it's it's just it's just a nothing it's not there you know yeah. It's like, oh yeah, that's the one for Romana shows. Okay, and that's you know that's what at, at best that's what people right, right. yeah. Um, I, I think that, and I think this is something that maybe the rebus operation. Um, God, that's another <laughs> another uh, a whole topic. It's almost like we could record a whole podcast about the rebus up. <laughs> uh, it's almost like no. we did. <laughs> um, no, the thing with kind of going back to why is this maybe a little forgotten? It's that it's it's you don't see it sweat. You don't see it trying that hard. And it's 
doing what it's doing again it is very surface it is kind of like uh slightly superficial but at the same time it's it's just really effective and i think that because it doesn't really i mean it does stand out from what's around it in, in a lot of ways but it's so connected to what's around it that it's hard to kind of i don't know that i could sit somebody down to end of the world by itself and say sit down and watch this um yeah you know. i think that's part of it and i think it really works in context with the rest of this the series in series one in terms of like building to where we're going to go and i think again not to not to leap ahead to talk about parting in the ways again but i think part of what makes that one so great is it's the fulfillment of all that we kind of get in that first series so yeah and i think that that's one of the issues with serialized television is i mean a lot of really great television today it's hard to take one bit of it and say this is the really good bit even though this is the really good bit it's good partly because of what's what it's all going to mean mm-hmm and setting all this stuff up. And it's just really efficient. It's it's just it's just great storytelling. You could go beat by beat for this and every scene, every moment has a purpose. Even if that purpose is just to be silly or funny or to play Britney Spears music for people to dance to at home. I don't know. <laughs> I actually really love the introduction of Toxic. I just I even the first time I cheered at that, I'm like, You're they're going there, really? We're listening to Britney yeah. Spears. Um, I don't know. I like I like that now, but as I say, it's because I'm fundamentally a different person right. to the person I was in 2004. It's also like right <laughs> now in 2017, Toxic sounds like classic. Like it just it, it doesn't it isn't like you know inundating the airwaves the way. I mean, even in 2005, it was still it was a couple years old at that point, but still like it it, it wouldn't have been um you know today it's like oh I remember that song yeah I and yeah. also I now have a fondness it's... to Toxic because it's in Doctor Who. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's a weird sort of reflexive thing happening. Um, the whole thing is very dated uh, in a good way. I mean, I don't mm-hmm. think that's a problem, but it's very, very of its time. Yeah, um, yeah. But I think one of the one of the reasons why it's not more remembered is is that it's very it's very complex. Like if you take the Unquiet Dead, the the Unquiet Dead is very content to be the spooky Victorian one with Charles Dickens in, right? Mm-hmm. Ghosts and Charles Dickens. It, I mean, you know, it, at the at the meeting, Russell T Davies said, right. Uh, Mark, I want you to write me Doctor Who in Victorian Wales with ghosts and Charles Dickens. And basically that's what Mark Mark Gatiss just went ahead and wrote that. He just went away and wrote that and came back and that's what they got. Um, Russell T Davies didn't do anything like that simple. There's nothing, there's nothing that direct in the end of the world because it's far more, it's far more complex. It's got a, it's got a far more diverse cast of characters, you know, so it's kind of unfocused. And again, that sounds pejorative. It's good. I like that. Mm-hmm. It's 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 unfocused in a good way. There's not a high but it does concept mean here. There's not. You can't. Yes. You can't explain this in a sentence. I mean, you can. Okay, the Doctor and Rose go and see the end of the planet Earth, but that doesn't. That's unspecific. But that but that doesn't yeah. that doesn't tell you anything about. I mean, the actual experience of watching it isn't anything about that at all. And and Rose no. even. I mean, it's it's genre aware in the sense of like, oh, you're going to come and you're going to save the Earth. Nope, it's done. This is it. Everybody's gone. Yeah. That, that's that's what this is. <laughs> oh no, I love this. I love this story. I love both. I mean, I love them both. I I mean, even though yeah, they they both have their issues, but particularly end of the world. I think in a classic, it's underappreciated classic. And um, yeah, I don't know. Do we have anything else to add to this? I, I feel like we, I feel like that's it. It's great. If you mm-hmm. if you haven't watched it, go watch it. I mean, you know, like, mm. though I can't imagine. Do not skip nine. Do not skip nine. I hate the skip nine people. Nine. Those people do yeah. not deserve to watch Doctor Who as far as I'm concerned. I don't understand the skip nine people. Like, why do they dislike him so much that they think he's worth skipping? 
I don't know if it's nine specifically so much as series one, because series one does have that weird disconnected feel, you know, because it's so it's so sort of trepidatious around the audience and it's so leery of continuity. It's now it now kind of feels a bit cut off from the rest of the series. I think that's I think that's where it comes from. You, fundamentally, You could really start with the Christmas invasion and, and have a, a full story like series two through, I guess, ten where we're God. Uh, nine is the last one we've seen feels like kind of one complete story and series one is sort of its own it's its own like little mini series it is yeah um, which is part of its beauty it's part of why it's aged so well i think well and it's part of what it's part of what i i mean i want doctor who to do more of that i want you to i i almost wish we got into show or every tell me the story you want to tell and then give it to somebody else well, I, you know, if somebody some, for some bizarre reason made me the showrunner tomorrow, like the first thing I would say would be, you know, no story arc this year. Yeah. And sort of shocked, shocked faces. What is it? No, literally no story arc this year. We just have 13. And I, I well, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily go to single episodes, but I have more single episodes and double episodes. And I'd say we just have X many stories to tell. And each story is just its own thing. And to the, to the extent that we have a story arc, the story arc is how the characters interrelate to each other. And the different stories that they land, you know, because you can't you can't go back to the way classic who used to do it. But there is a virtue in part of that approach that I think could well be resurrected now. Well, they keep trying to, like, split the difference of having individual stories that are doing their thing and then kind of have a uh, because that's sort of the, the point of Doctor Who is we're landing places and doing things and then having an adventure and then moving on and doing something else next week. But well, it should the sort of modern conception of what television is, is like, Oh, we have to have some big bad at the ending. And I think that, I mean, yeah. what works about series one is you don't know that's coming. <laughs> you know? Mm. Um, well, I'm not sure they even really did, you know, kind of the big bad kind of, they, they, I know, I know they always wanted it to end with the Daleks, you know, and then for a while it didn't look like they were going to be able to. So Russell T Davies invented the Toclophane and then put those on the back burner for later because they got the Daleks after all. So yeah, they were always planning on a big Dalek at the end and that's fair enough. But series one still feels like a series of, you know, um, not isolated, discrete stories that are linked by these characters' developments. Right. You know? right. And then you get the, the bad the bad wolf thing is very bolted on, the back end. Mm-hmm. I mean, it literally was bolted on. They kind of made that up as they went along. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why I think it works a lot better than, uh, than uh, you know, some of the later seasons. Series. Series? What, <laughs> I don't know. Whatever. It's fine. <laughs> It's late where it I am. It's late. Yes, it's. Uh, I think. I think we're done. I think. Um, I think we're wrapping I think up. We're wrapped up. Yeah. Um, well, we're sliding back into Moffat hate, aren't we? Inexorably. So. <laughs> if we if we keep talking another hour, we're just going to uh, all be bashing Stephen Moffat and uh, Donald Trump um, interchangeably. You know. Yeah. Remember that executive order that Stephen Moffat laid out about like banning all the Muslims from the United States? Yeah, I remember that. That was uh, that was yeah. terrible. That was that one with the aliens in New Mexico, right? <laughs> and i think that's a good place to wrap jack tell us where we can find your stuff for, uh, for the two people graffiti. who don't know but please jack tell us where we can find yeah stuff. google shaboon graffiti 10 there you go okay um all the rest i of- have a great shabcast it sometimes features shana it will next week by the time, well, by the time you, depending on when this goes this, out this will go out uh before that so um yeah by the time you listen to this i will include well i guess i can include a link but go find it it's fine shana okay the last one featured shana <laughs> I'm on number 29, yo. 
Yeah. And we talked about the never ending story, which we decided was a visual influence on in, on the end of the world. Mm. And so that's definitely worth uh, listening to and, and finding out. Um, I listened to half of that episode be recorded because Shana was downstairs while uh, they were recording it. But um, I don't know what Jack said, so I'm going to have to listen to the episode to find out. So thank you very much, Jack, for being on. Thanks always to Shana. Thank you to everybody for listening. Um, sorry for the slightly more disorganized podcast than normal, but to uh this is this is how new who came back so we gotta uh give it props and end of the world is phenomenal and you're a bad person if you don't think so and follow is amazing so that's it bye bye oh and until next week the chart is closed i forgot yeah, i know you have a fucking tagline I, I don't have a fucking tagline my tagline <laughs> is to just fucking make fun of you and apparently say the f word a lot so it goes the sun shield is down <laughs> we thank james bragg for the use of our theme song Doctor Who theme on Minimook. You can find his work at youtube.com slash hyperdust7 or at phoenix-flare.com. All our episodes can be found at oispaceband.lipson.com or on iTunes. You can find Oispaceband on Facebook or email us at oispacebandpodcast at gmail.com. We also have an irregularly updated blog at oispacebandblog.wordpress.com. Daniel is also the co-host of a weekly movie podcast called They Must Be Destroyed on Sight, which you can find at tmbdos.podbean.com. You can find Daniel's Twitter and Tumblr at Daniel Lee Harper, all one word, and you can find Shanus at Inkyosa, that's I-N-K-Y-O-S-A. We look forward to hearing from you.